everybody, and welcome back to... The Iron List! Clang, clang. Thank you. Clang, uh, clang, clang with the trolley. <laughs> ding, ding, ding with the... The bell. Well, bell. No, sorry, I was trying to remember if that started with, movie started with a B or not. Uh, uh, welcome back to The Iron List. This is the podcast uh, where every month, Whitney Seibold and I... He's Whitney Seibold. Indeed I am. <laughs> I'm willing to be on. Everybody calls hey, me Debs. Thank you for introducing me. Whoops. Uh, we do a big old list as chosen by our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We recommend uh, movies of a certain type, a certain genre, a certain filmmaker. Uh, and in this case, a certain uh, letter. Uh, just as a joke, a couple months ago. We uh, we put on a poll. Uh, why don't we just cover the best films that start with the letter A? Yeah, in a very Sesame Street sort of fashion. Kind of, kind of, it's kind of a fun idea. It's also a little arbitrary, and it kind of pokes fun at the idea of the lists mm-hmm. in some ways. And uh, it won in a landslide. Yeah, everybody wanted read... us to hear about the letter A, yeah. and in the very next poll, we said, "Well, to heck with it. We'll put the letter B." And then nobody selected it for a long time, and I mm. left it in the poll just out of stubbornness. <laughs> just and, just like it's gonna you never have to vote for it but uh, it's gonna be in here until you do eventually uh the our guests our listeners were worn down so yeah. now we're finally talking about the best films that start with look, the letter look, b it's january january in january you get really bad ideas yeah you know, like january is usually full of movies that everyone's just like ah, eh, just throw it out there everyone's just like okay just throw the b list out there so uh this episode of the iron list Whitney Seibold and i it's our b movies podcast it kind of is uh we're doing the best movies that begin with the letter b uh they That's begin the, with the only criterion. <laughs> and uh, to be clear, if there's an article at the beginning of the mm. title, uh, the, uh, mm. an, uh, that doesn't count as a separate word. It still mm. begins with a B. Yeah. Um, so like the Blues Brothers, not saying that's on either mm. of our list, but that's still Blues Brothers. Yeah. And, However, uh, if there's a preposition like in Blues Brothers, which is not a name of a movie... I really loved that Tom Hooper film in Blues Brothers. <laughs> uh, uh, that would that that would count as an I. That's that goes for yeah. articles in other languages as well. Le, la, das. Yes, uh, indeed. Das boat starts with a B. Yep, and uh, uh, at least one of those I think will come up mm-hmm. on this list. I have no idea what Whitney put on his list. Whitney has no idea what I put on my list. I could venture some guesses, but I he always throws some curveballs at me, and I never quite know where he's going to go. Absolutely, I do. And in fact, um, because this is such a broad topic and such a weird idea, uh, this is going to be a few uh, classics that I enjoy and I just mm-hmm. want to talk about. I'm also going to throw in a few films that I just want to recommend. Sure. Uh, that, you know, maybe they're not the best movies ever, but I want to insist on talking about them just because I want you to see them. Um, when it comes to kind of the films that start with the letter B, I think posterity is kind of out the window anyway. Well, I kind of like it because like, it feels like we're cataloging like kind of every movie ever. And theoretically, mm. if we kept doing this, we'd eventually get to Z. And then we'd look at mm. the best films that had a title this, and that doesn't, and here's the funny thing though, is that because it's so arbitrary, mm. uh, the films that make my top 10 best movies to begin with a B aren't necessarily as good as the as the A list or the C list or the D list. Yeah. They're just of the ones that begin with B, these are the ones I like the most. If you uh, are uh, the kind of person who alphabetizes your DVD collection, mm-hmm. as many people do. Indeed. 
it's always fun to find really uh, disparate films put right next to each other on the list. Mm. It's very it's true. Like, yeah. Oh, look, I'm going to watch either Dr. Zhivago or Dr. Strangelove tonight. Oh, those are very different movies. Indeed. Um, so, uh, again, for everyone who uh, may be new to this or maybe has forgotten, the way Whitney Seibold and I do... Uh, our top 10 lists are a little different from the way a lot of other people do them because mm. a lot of people get really focused on rankings. My number nine mm. is better than my number 10. No. For us, these are all recommendations. These are all 100% full-throated, you know, confident recommendations. Mm. We want you to see all of these movies. Yeah. Rankings are irrelevant. However, just for the sake of being able to say we put some thought into it and that we're really passionate about something and if our taste matters to you that much, um, we have each picked the number one. Yeah. And that's the one that we feel most strongly about. That's the one that's like, if you see, have only time to see one movie that we recommend, please see this one. That's the idea. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, without th these episodes always take a really long time, which is why Whitney <laughs> always groans when we're about to start recording them. <sighs> okay, let's do it. Let's do it, uh, and let's let Whitney Seibold uh, right. begin. Why am I using your last name all the time? Whitney, begin. You can call me Whitney Seibold. I don't mind. I don't it just seems weird to call you Whitney Seibold I, all the time. It'd be like, it's like if I'm. It's like if I did a foreword to a book you wrote. I would refer to you as Seibold. Seibold. When Seibold was authoring yeah. this volume, yeah, like uh, it's Whitney. And I him. I do do appreciate. Um, Gray Drake once gave me a great bit of advice when it comes to interviewing people. Oh yeah, I've heard uh, this too. When you're addressing a celebrity, address them by their credited screen name. The full name. The, their full name. So it's Tom like, Cruise, it's, Tom Cruise. He's not nice, Tom, he's not Mr. Cruise, yeah, he's Tom it's, Cruise. It's nice to meet you, Tom Cruise. It's nice to meet you, Samuel L. Jackson. You don't call him Sam. Mm -hmm. Unless they say, Yo, oh, I insist, call me Sam. Yeah, uh, well, then, then it's polite. You yeah. do what you do. It, they, they say. But yeah, that's the thing a lot of people like struggle with when they meet celebrities or they mm. interview them for the first time. What's the, what's the most appropriate thing? Do you... Uh, it take on familiarity because you're trying to help their brand and make them seem really affable and friendly? Hmm. Or is that too comfortable and you call them Mr. and Mrs. or whatever, yeah, so-and-so? respectful, yeah. and, But that might make them feel old or that might make them feel so, distance. Yeah, and so some, that, the some best of them compromise, would prefer to be a little bit more casual. Yeah, so the best compromise is just their whole name. It feels kind of like an honorific mm -hmm. because they're they're kind of, it's like they're branding, but it's also familiar and most people find it kind of funny. <laughs> so it's it's yeah. some of the best interview advice I've ever had. Yeah, yeah. It's just the 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 end all be all best advice you could do when you talk to a celebrity, call them by the first and last. So yeah, if if, if you're uh, if you're skittish about introducing yourself to me because I'm such a celebrity, <laughs> yes. uh you can call me Whitney Seibold. Right. Uh let's talk about the film Borgman. Oh, okay. Really? Yeah. This is your number 10. That's an interesting I, I choice. Like, okay. Well, well, you know number what I mean. 10. It's this on major, my list. This made your top 10. Um, That's an interesting choice. Well, it's, uh, again, this is a film that I want to recommend. This is a film that I it's really, okay. really, really like um, and is, is not there's, talked there's, about. There's like thousands of movies that mm -hmm. begin with the letter B. So yeah. regardless of whether or not you think these are the best, that this has made the top 10 films you want to talk about mm -hmm. is interesting. Okay. Um, Borgman is a Dutch film from 2013. Uh, it is about a person question mark who's living in the woods uh in in a hole and there's somebody after this guy and he, he ends up like crawling out of the the hole and runs to a local home which is like this big mansion by this owned by this bourgeois family uh and he appears at the door and the wife uh answers the door and says oh god i, I told you never to come back here it's like i just need a place to crash and he sneaks in and he's able to live in the house with the family without any of the family members seeing him. 
He's able to just sort of like stroll past them right when they're passing by. He just moves with complete comfort and ease. And through uh, this very sinister, almost horror movie-like setup, we find that he actually is up to something kind of sinister, but we're not really sure what it is. Uh, he's been luring the kids out to an oubliette in the woods and, you know, maybe poisoning people. And it all comes down to this weird performance art thing that goes on in the backyard at one point in the movie. Uh, it is, it, it feels like nightmares I've had. Yeah. This, that there's this sort of invasive invading presence in your home. Yeah. And it's not like a, a home invasion horror movie where, you know, they capture you and they torture you. No, it's just, just the idea that your home isn't private. Your home isn't, your home isn't yeah. private. There's, yeah. there's something there yeah. uh, that it's is not, in, interrupting the normality. Of and things. if you think about it, that's just true, isn't it? Like, even mm. if there isn't like a person living in your crawl space mm. and who hasn't had that nightmare, yeah. um, pests you know uh, uh you know people have like termites fleas mice cockroaches yeah, yeah. even just pets you live with a cat you don't really think about that but that's their this is their castle too mm. you know uh whenever i'm going through a particularly tense times in my life this is what my nightmares look like just on a personal note, yeah, where there's there's some there's a thing there's an invading presence uh, in in my home or in a familiar Wh- space. Where do you think it would mm. be? Like in your head when you like mm. discover like you you push aside the piano and there's mm. like a big hole there, like like this weird mm. space between like your living room and your bedroom. Is it like, uh, where where would they be? Where would they come from? Oh well, in in one uh, rather vivid nightmare I had once, uh, they it was like a, in a Star Trek episode where they were like out of sync with normal time. Oh. And I was able to sort of like slow down time and all of a sudden there were all these like weird things living in my house. Well, that's probably just true, isn't it? Isn't that how we think of like no, it's other like dimensions? alternate dimensions yeah, and stuff? Like they're yeah. just vibrating at a different frequency. Yeah. Uh, or we so, don't have the senses necessary in order to witness yeah. them. Borgman is this really uh, almost absurdist dramedy thing. There's a lot of like really absurd, funny moments in it, mm-hmm. but it's also really scary. Uh, it was submitted for an Academy Award, but it wasn't nominated because mm-hmm. it's... I, and it, when you watch it, it's for obvious reasons. Yeah, it's pretty weird. I still haven't seen this. I remember when this mm-hmm. came out, and you were one of the only critics who made like, a big deal out of it. Yeah, I really, like, really, really loved Borgman. Slipped and, uh, under a lot of radars, yeah. and I still haven't gotten around to it. I kept meaning to, but mm-hmm. then, you know, life took over, and getting back to Borgman never felt like the biggest <laughs> priority. But well, if, it's this, if you like yeah. it so much, you really want to highlight it, I guess it should. Well, you know what? It's on Tubi. <sighs> God bless Tubi. So yeah, well, just go go ahead and, and I wish I wish the ad dollars in. didn't go to the Fox News Corporation. But oh, that's right. Yeah, Fox, oh, well, the okay, Fox there's... Corporation, not the one that Disney bought, the one that kept Fox News. Yeah, they own let, Tubi, let look, and that on, and that stinks. It's also on Pluto TV. There you go. Man. I don't know what Pluto TV it's, gives if, money to, but if you have an yeah. Amazon Prime membership, T- and Tubi you mind... still has an amazing selection. It's just like corporations on everything. What yeah. are you gonna do? Um, all right, so for my uh, 10 pick, or my 10th pick, I try to always make sure when I do something like this that I reserve at least one space for a movie that I'm going to just take a big swing with. I'll pick, I, I went for a posterity for a lot of stuff. I picked right. like a lot of just classic movies. Yeah, that, I, I picked a couple of those. Yeah, too. I, picked, I picked quite a few, and these are films that I just, for the record... Yeah, I know I don't always, I know I tend to focus on my weird, mm. you know, predilections towards talking about stuff that people, other people don't like, like White House Down or Jupiter Ascending or the mm. Airbud sequels or whatever. But, um, you know, I do, I, I do have taste. <laughs> <laughs> I do like good things. Mm. Um, but every once in a while, I think it's important for a critic to take a stand and say that a movie that they 
truly admire mm-hmm. that doesn't get put in the like best of selections very often mm-hmm. and say this deserves there. I'm just going to get on my pulpit, mm-hmm. get on my Apple box and take a stand and say that one of the 10 best movies that begin with the letter B, a movie mm-hmm. that is not only flat out from beginning to end 100% hilarious, mm-hmm. wonderfully acted, pretty damn incisive uh, and satirical about uh, American xenophobia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and honestly, just impeccably crafted. Joe Dante's The Burbs. Oh, okay, interesting choice. I love this movie, and it was a movie well, I loved I, for a long I, I time. I rewatched it for uh, uh, recently around like, Halloween last year. Or something. Yeah, I rewatched it not that long ago mm-hmm. too, and I it's a movie I hadn't revisited in a while, and I always remember liking it. It was on TV a lot when I was young, and. Mm-hmm. When I rewatched it, I was like, God, I hope this holds up. And it turns out it holds up amazing. <laughs> uh, if you haven't seen it, it's a little under the radar now. It used to be ubiquitous. doesn't get talked about too much anymore. It's very bizarre. It's a, it's a, it's a weird, quirky film. Uh, Tom Hanks, back when he was still funny Tom Hanks, he hadn't made that like full-on transition into dramatic roles, which he did like in the mid-90s. That was, that was uh, starting with Philadelphia, really, where he yeah. got, got an Academy Award for that. Yeah, he uh, uh, he stars as a suburban dad who's married to Carrie Fisher. She's playing a role. He's not married to actual Carrie Fisher. <laughs> uh, that, that would be a different film. Um, you know, he's got some kids or whatever, and it's his vacation. He's got like a week off. And what he has decided to do is they're not going to go anywhere. He wants to stay home and putter. Mm. He's got some new tools. He just wants to tinker around the house, relax, not have the added pressure of having to go anywhere. And he's just going to hang out with his neighbors who are all a bunch of kooky people. Got a, a neighbor who's like a kind of a manipulative hanger on, kind of like a sitcom funny neighbor who's always getting mm. it into scrapes. Uh, you got Bruce Dern as the local, like, re- really weird, like, Vietnam vet guy who, like, makes a big deal out of raising the American flag in his front yard every morning. Yeah, he, they play the, the music from Patton whenever he yeah. shows up. Uh, you got uh, Corey Feldman as, like, the in local... The Corey like, Feldman role. Yeah, basically, but he was a teenager at that point, so he was, like, the cool teenager. And his whole thing is, everyone on my street is so weird mm-hmm. that all I do every day is just sit on my porch and watch them be weird. And he kind of invites us into the into that world. They have new neighbors. Their new neighbors are basically like the Adams family if they weren't fun. They're really creepy. They're constantly digging are, in their backyard they, at night. Are they kooky, mysterious, and spooky? They're mysterious, yeah. yes. And I would say they are altogether ooky. Okay, but I don't know if and, and but I don't know if they're like kooky. That's my point. I think they're kooky. <laughs> okay, they don't seem fun. In fact. Mm-hmm. They're pretty convinced pretty early on that one of their neighbors who has gone missing may have been killed by their new neighbors, the Klopex. So it's all about them trying to talk themselves out of their paranoia about the other that has just moved into their neighborhood Mm -hmm. and increasingly finding evidence that all of their anxieties about new people, people who have come from a different place, people who come from a different country, may Mm -hmm. be real. Uh, And it is a film about that constant war between, okay, yeah, bad things do happen, but surely we're being paranoid here. Mm. And it's incredibly funny. It's really bitter and and understands that the real villains, regardless of whether or not the Klopex are bad people, they may or may not be. Regardless of that, they understand that the real villains here 
are Tom Hanks and his friends. Yeah. Because they have whipped themselves up into a frenzy over probably nothing. And even if there is anything, it's none of their damn business. And it is about how, like, you can have, like, a mob mentality Mm. with just a couple of people if they're susceptible to it. And I think that's Joe Dante. Joe Dante really doesn't trust suburbia. You look at like what he did with the Gremlins movies. You look at what he did with like even well, the, like Small Soldiers. Yeah, there, there was uh, it wasn't just Joe Dante. That was uh, a part of just a lot of art in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. A lot of pop art. It was this uh, whether it was uh, promoting it or uh, eviscerating it. There was just a lot of this examination of the uh, ideal lassie father knows best 1950s sitcom suburban ideal Mm -hmm. which reagan had sort of repopularized as something that we in the 80s should be striving for yeah so there were a lot of movies at the time that were really trying to take it down and the burbs does it directly yeah it's called the burbs yeah (laughs) it's not really a fucking around with it It has it has an apostrophe but i still think it counts as a b um It's it's really impeccable. Uh, the musical score is an all timer. Mm-hmm. Um, the cast is really really great. I quote it all the time. It's very very funny. Um, I, I may have a slight quibble with the ending, but I think they they get away with it. I uh-huh. don't want to ruin it for you. Uh, but I think it's a comedy classic, and I think it deserves to be in the all timer conversations. And that's me taking a stand. All right, that's fine. What you got next? Uh, what else? What do I have next? I don't know. Um, Whitney. I mean, that's why I asked you. I want to talk about Brazil. Okay. I like Brazil. Brazil's okay. Uh, directed. <laughs> Brazil's okay. I got nothing against Brazil. Uh, directed by Terry Gilliam, a very creative filmmaker who's a dick in real life. Yep. That's that's just the fact of the matter. Yeah. Uh, but he also has a good eye for uh, chaos and anarchy. Uh, he he just sort of gives you these really dizzying worlds that are almost. Mm. Almost unwatchable in a lot of ways. There's so much detail in his films. There's, it's difficult to absorb it all in one sitting. He he, he emerged from Monty Python. He was mm. the American member of Monty Python. He was the animator in Monty Python, and he directed some of their early stuff too. And it's abundantly clear that he wanted Monty Python to be so much darker. Yeah, <laughs> like he, he wanted it he to wanted be it. scathing. And when you look at the film he made, I think it was the first film he made solo, Jabberwocky. Mm. Which is very much a Monty Python movie. If Monty Python hated everything, yeah, it was, it's a great movie, but it's really weird and, and dark. You, you watch Monty Python, you can tell who wrote which ones. Like the ones that were just sort of like absurd and flip and fun. That's clearly Terry Jones and Michael Palin. The mm. ones that are a little bit more intellectual and wordy. That's uh, Graham Chapman and John Cleese. Is there a musical number? It was Eric. It was Idle. yeah. Eric Idle did all of the music <laughs> stuff, and, and you know he. he a, a lot of like the I think the news announcer stuff I think that was uh, a lot of that was Eric Idle and then yeah all of sort of coming in from his own little world who didn't really write with the rest of the gang was Terry Gilliam yeah and yeah the animations are just completely surreal hmm. and uh, yeah when he decides to make a feature film well good golly here's how it looks it's it's hazy it's muddy it's hopeless mm-hmm. it's a, a very clear riff on a lot of uh, dystopian literature like uh, 1984 and Brave New World. It's Kafka-esque if Kafka had a better sense of where technology was going to go. Yeah, it's like sci-fi Kafka. Yeah. And it it takes place in uh, an unknown year in the future. Uh, It doesn't take place in Brazil. It takes place... I I don't think they even say where it is. I think it's in England. Uh, Um, I don't know, because Robert De Niro clearly isn't from England, right? It's this weird nebulous... But uh, technology has overwhelmed everything to the point where there's just tubes in everyone's houses, Mm. uh, plumbing is everywhere, and everything is run by a 
a bureaucracy that literally will just eat people alive. Yeah. Uh, and once it, the, the action of the movie starts off when there's an error in a typing machine, uh, that accidentally, uh, signs up a man for like assassination essentially. And he just gets taken away and we don't know whatever happened to that guy. He was just sort of swallowed by this clerical error. Yeah. Uh, and l- later on in the movie, it become as the the world become becomes increasingly surreal and uh, caustic. Uh, this uh, guy who lives off the grid, the Robert De Niro character, is uh, beset by paperwork, and the papers literally eat him alive on, in the street. Yeah, how's that for a symbol for you? It's yeah. it's not a subtle film. I was about to uh, say <laughs> it's actually pretty pretty thuddingly obvious, but it is such a a, a visual treat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is such a, a, a surreal, um, I said dizzying already, this kind of swirling world of, of detail and dystopia and, you know, dreams and nightmares that it, it becomes kind of hypnotic. You know, when I was, uh, when I was young, I, you know, I mean, I, I like some subtle movies, but I tended to gravitate towards, uh, simplistic in your face stuff because I didn't understand nuance very well. I was a little kid. And then I got older and I started appreciating more nuance and subtlety. And then mm. I got older than that. And I realized that sometimes you need to be slapped in the face with a fish. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you sometimes you need a movie. Just not always. It shouldn't be the norm. But sometimes it's okay if a movie is very direct and just is what it is and wants to be incredibly clear about what its point is. Because sometimes if you're not, people take weird takeaways from it. Yeah. It's hard to watch Brazil and say to yourself, corporations are fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, it, the point you're not is take very the, clear. You're not going to take the wrong message from that yeah. movie, especially yeah. if you get uh, the original ending, the unhappy. Oh, yeah. There was a happy ending. There's there's a, you there's can a get whole the bunch crit- of different edits of Brazil. Yeah, you can yeah. get the, the Criterion edition has all of the different edits and all of the explanations as to why the different edits happened. Um, this And that was the easy production for Gilliam. All of his, oh, yeah. his productions have been cursed. Um for one reason or another, just uh, nothing ever worked out right. He finally made that Don Quixote movie. It was in theaters for like a day. I missed it. And I, I haven't been the, able to I see it still. It. Yeah. Um, he's a good filmmaker. I think that's fair to say. But again, yeah, well known to be an asshole. But he's made some excellent mm-hmm. films, some of which are very, I'm very, very fond of. Um, Brazil is not my is not in my like top three or four Gilliam. I, I would uh, put, per, personally, it's a great movie. Right. I got nothing against it, but... For me, I'm a bit more attracted to uh, maybe the more like personable ones, mm-hmm. like the Fisher, Fisher King. King. Fisher yeah. King's a good example. Even Baron Munchausen, which is very mm-hmm. sentimental at times. Yeah. Um, I think when when he's balances his cynicism with a little bit of heart. Like, uh, Time Bandits is another good example. When he balances mm-hmm. his cynicism with just a little bit of heart, not a lot, because mm-hmm. I don't think he can handle it, but just a little bit. I think that's the sweet spot for Gilliam. And Brazil is just a little too oppressive for me to truly enjoy. Uh, yeah. I, I think uh, may, I, I definitely saw it at the right age. Uh, I, you know, I, I kind of became really obsessed with Brazil when I was like 19. Mm. It's like, oh yeah, nihilism, man, the world sucks and everything's just this big, stupid bureaucracy and I'm going to go watch South Park and eat <laughs> peanut butter and it's... Uh, <laughs> Because it's 1997, man. <laughs> you know, everyone was eating peanut butter back then. <laughs> Not like now. Peanut butter today. I don't know why that was a detail yeah, included. Was a hell of a choice. Mm. Um, so, so I've I've always had a, a little bit of a, a a tender spot for Brazil, and I decided to mention it. 
It's a, it, it doesn't it's get a ta- very respectable choice. I, f- I feel like it's not talked about a lot, and they're probably if there are yeah. some young people listening, if if you two are nineteen and eating peanut butter, uh, <laughs> by all means, watch Brazil. There, there was a time when Brazil was just one of the main cult movies that everyone yeah, talked about. Yeah, it, it was in the and, midnight circuit. And for it a long just, time. it just, I think it just other things just sort of sidelined it a little bit. But I'm glad you're bringing it back. Mm. Uh, I want to talk about cool. Mm. Boy, boy, people people boy. like uh, uh, things that are cool. And I don't mean popular, per se. I mean things that are slick. Mm. Things that are sexy. Things that are kind of weird, but people, you know that they're that you know that they're having sex. You know, People like that. are un- unflappable in the, yeah. the face of extreme situations. Mo- movies that are stylish and eccentric in a way that doesn't make you feel like they're not badass. Uh, there are certain filmmakers who have just got that cool vibe. Mm. And people love them. People like uh, Quentin Tarantino, or Robert mm. Rodriguez, uh, and they they have not come out of nowhere. They they have people who preceded them and were kooky and weird and stylish and awesome. And sometimes they get overlooked uh, in the shadow of the people who are who in, were inspired by them. Mm. So let me tell you about a little filmmaker called Seijun Suzuki. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you watched Branded to Kill. Didn't yeah, you? I did. All right. <laughs> Seijun Suzuki is a Japanese filmmaker who was made quite a few films. Then he got blacklisted because of Branded to Kill, and I'll tell you that story in a second. Uh, and he made some of the slickest, coolest, weirdest crime films of the 60s. He was like Jean-Pierre Melville, if Jean-Pierre Melville smoked a lot of weed. Like, just, <laughs> just, a, just a strange, wonderful, imaginative filmmaker who worked... In the realm of crime, but was very excited to tell stories that were very arch and over the top in some regards. And were sort of playing with the expectations that we have of the genre and turning them into some kind of cartoon. Uh, Branded to Kill, I haven't seen every film he's ever done, but Branded to Kill is by far my favorite um, Mm -hmm. that I've seen. Uh, Branded to Kill is about Japan's third best hitman. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that is not a joke. They rank them. <laughs> the top five hitmen are all like very well known and very well respected, and they're always trying to kill each other in order to go up the ranks. Mm. Uh, the top, uh, the number three hitman at the beginning of the movie is enlisted to do a job. That job involves a bunch of really cool, weird stuff, like setting guys on fire and hitting them with a car there's an amazing car chase like on a beach where a car is like spinning donuts while a bunch of guys are running after it and shooting it while the guy in the car is (laughs) shooting at them they're not in cars they're just running after it on foot it's so weird and yet you don't question it because that's the universe of the movie um he accepts a job to assassinate a bunch of people and then he accepts a job to kill someone under extreme circumstances he has two seconds Mm. and one shot to kill a guy. And that's his only shot he's ever going to get. That's all you really need. Yeah. Two seconds doesn't allow you a lot of leeway. And there's actually a good line of dialogue where someone says, well, aren't you one of the greatest assassins in Japan? Aren't you the third best? Mm-hmm. And he's just like, yeah. And because I'm a good assassin, I know that you don't try to make things more complicated than they need to be. Surely there's a better way to do this. Um, but this is it. He has to do it. And while he is, he's got the shot lined up. It's perfect. He's ready to go. And then he's like, you can see like through his perspective, like through his scope on a sniper rifle, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden 
it's a weird like pattern and he doesn't know what it is a butterfly landed on his scope right before he needed to take the shot he misses the shot he accidentally kills a civilian and this means in the weird mysterious rules of this like crime syndicate that his life is forfeit and every, it's it's hunting season everyone's out to get him it's like john wick a little bit like john wick if john wick were like kooky <laughs> if, john yeah. wick, if john wick were eccentric and weird this guy is is prone to weird predilections uh he likes to his his greatest vice mm. he doesn't really smoke or drink to speak of he doesn't do drugs but he loves to smell rice and i don't mean like oh that smells nice i mean he'll go into a, like a building and be like get me rice and then i'll just put his face over the rice and just huff it that's the movie we're in <laughs> buckle up it gets stranger um he ends up in like this ongoing war with the number one killer and the number one killer is one of the weirdest villains I've ever seen in a movie. Like I'm not going to ruin it for you. Just suffice it to say when you meet this person, they're not what you expect and their plan for him is not what you would expect. <laughs> it's super bizarre, um, but it plays very much like a comic book in the sort of way that I think something like John Wick owes a lot to yeah, Sajin Suzuki, yeah, like yeah, owes a sure. lot to this weird over-the-top, arch, broadly characterized world of super assassins who play by a very specific group of rules that they actually do abide by. Um, it's violent. Uh, it's There's sexism here. He's, he's not a good person. And frankly, mm. no one is. Uh, but it's that kind of very particular tough guy gangster movie in which, yeah, th these are not people to be celebrated uh, these are people to be sort of like we're fascinated by them because they live outside the law and they're they've got their own style and they're super cool, but they'll get their comeuppance, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> but it's there's there aren't a lot of crime movies like it, and the ones that are probably ripped this off. Seijun Suzuki made this movie and the studio hated it and didn't want to release it, and then he said it's under my contract, you have to release it. He took them to court. So they released it. People hated it. Oh my god! <laughs> Didn't make money, and then he got blacklisted and wasn't allowed to make it, like to direct a movie again for like ten years. Mm. But in that time, because he took a stand against the studio system in Japan, he became a counterculture icon, mm. <laughs> and finally was allowed to make movies. And eventually, I actually haven't seen it, but he he eventually did a sequel to this in like the year two thousand two thousand two called Pistol Opera. Mm. And I've been meaning to get around to that. I just never found the time. But um, Branded to Kill is one of the hippest movies you probably haven't seen, and you should absolutely see it. Please do. I haven't seen Branded to Kill. No shit. No, I've seen Tokyo Drifter. Also great. Yeah, uh, but I've not seen Branded to Kill. Yeah, I, I, I dig the Seijin Suzuki I've seen. It's uh, underseen in my filmography, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Criterion put out a lot of his movies. Mm. Uh, if, just, if nothing else, just see the ones that they did, please. But he was pretty prolific. He mm. co-directed an anime uh, Lupin the Third film, and I only just found that out, and I need to track that yeah. one down. Yeah, he sure yeah. did. Yeah, it's neat. Uh, Cinephile has it. Okay. Uh, Cinephile Video, our, our local yeah. video store. Yeah. I'll bet it's cool. Um, yeah, I don't have any Seijin Suzuki. I don't have anything cool on my list. Okay. Well, what, do you, what do you have that's boring um, and nerdy? Uh, I have a Japanese film. Okay, that's not boring uh, and nerdy, but okay. Uh, Kurosawa made a oh. film that starts with the letter B. <laughs> It's is called it, the, it's called the it, bad sleep well. Oh, I was like, yeah. is it Bloodbeard? What is it? <laughs> Bloodbeard? Yeah, yeah it was, it was, I was it was Redbeard, but maybe I was pronouncing it oh, wrong. So it's Bloodbeard. Bre Breadbeard. You know, he did that one uh, King Blear adaptation, Blan. 
Oh my god. We're, yeah. we're going here. Our, Akira okay. Kurosawa's Bleems. Uh, Kurosawa made several films that were uh, direct adaptations of, or at least inspired by, William Shakespeare. His most famous one is probably Ron, which is based on King Lear. Yeah. Uh, he uh, also did Throne of Blood, which is a direct adaptation of Macbeth. Uh, he did a film called Kagemusha, which is not directly based on Shakespeare, but looks a lot like Shakespearean history. It has a lot of Shakespearean vibes. There's yeah. a lot of like you know mistaken identity or impersonation. And yeah, and, and just the, the way really... the the way the royal court is presented yeah. is a very Shakespearean. You, you can tell he's a fan. Yeah, yeah. and. Uh, the Bad Sleep Well is his Hamlet. Uh, he did a Hamlet story, and it is about uh, an ousted uh, Hamlet-like character, played by Toshiro Mifune, uh, whose father is murdered, uh, but it's, it, takes, it takes place in uh, modern day, and it's all these uh, corporate uh, sleazebags who are murdering each other for power. And it's about how he is, more so than in Hamlet, actively trying to uh, get them to confess now, that's a big part of Hamlet is um, the whole, like, the plays the thing where he's trying to get uh, Claudius to sort of confess well, his guilt. A, a go- if you don't remember the plot of Hamlet, a ghost, the ghost of Hamlet's father, who mm. recently died, he was the king, tells Hamlet that I was murdered by your uncle who has usurped the throne. Mm. And Hamlet immediately wonders if that's true, because mm. why would I take this guy's word for it? He's a ghost. Well, so it, he's got to find a way to prove that th- this is real, and his way to do it is he's going to put on a play that shows exactly what the ghost is accusing his uncle is, and he's going to just closely watch his uncle to see if maybe there's some subtle hint mm. that he's uh, upset by this, or that he thinks someone's watching them, and then he just blows up in the middle of it. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty really much. really obvious. It's it, it's really obvious, but yeah. there, there's this whole theme of uh, Hamlet as the confessor. Uh, he, uh, in fact, uh, Kenneth Branagh really wisely uh, staged a scene where uh, after that uh, plays the thing, uh, the plays the thing scene after the yeah. mousetrap, Claudius retreats to his chamber and starts to say, "Oh, oh shit, I'm caught." I need to confess. And they actually goes into a confessional and Hamlet's in the confessional with him and like sticks a knife through the confessional. Oh, that's really cool. And then it turns yeah, out like, it was a dream. Yeah. Well, that, that, no, it wasn't con- a dream. He, he, he says, well, doesn't he but just if, do it like, and then they go ah, No, never mind. Well, he thinks it's like, now I'll do it and I'll just stab him in the ear. Cause but that's where the poison went. And, uh, yeah. And he says, but, uh, but I can't do it because he's actually confessing right now. And that's going to put me in hell. So no, I won't do that. Yeah. And, that, that's in the play too. That's I mean, in the like, pl- No, yeah, that's like it. Olivia did a version mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. That's in the text of the play. And uh, yeah. th- this idea of uh, serving as a confessor, trying to uh, get guilt out of the sinners, more or less, yeah. is a big theme of The Bad Sleep Well. And in fact, a lot of it's actually a lot more plot-driven than Hamlet. Mm. I think it's a lot more to do with the machinations of the Hamlet character and how he's trying to manipulate this court, or rather, corporate boardroom, well, to... What- uh, Get get his revenge essentially. What is the plot of the bad? Uh, confession time. I've never seen the bad sleep well. So give, oh, okay. me, give me the gist of it. Like give me the setup for this one. Uh, there uh, a, a recently a, a corporate uh, leader of some sort threw himself out a, a high window, mm. seemingly committed suicide, and uh, a new regime has sort of come in to take things over, and the son of the guy who committed suicide and the opening scene has uh, set up a special cake for everybody with the window that the guy jumped out of specially marked. 
And so it's like, oh, somebody somebody knows something's going on here right away. So and that's the mousetrap. It's like the that's, sea like, that, like, It opens yeah. with the mousetrap, essentially. Okay. And uh, we eventually, and we actually don't see the Tashira Mifune character, the Hamlet character, for a little while. It's actually uh, mostly uh, crowds. And I think that's one of Kurosawa's biggest strengths, is he's good at directing crowds and pointing out that a crowd can sort of be a character by itself. Yeah. Uh, that's a big part of Yojimbo. That's a big yeah. part of Ikiru. Uh, yeah. At the Seven end, Samurai, the whole village. Yeah, is the a whole village basically. is kind of a character yeah. unto themselves. Uh, and this is about sort of how his little accusations are creating these big ripples throughout this corporate crowd. Yeah. Uh, and and it continues apace. It's you know two and a half hour Hamlet story. Cool. Um, I I really really love it. I I love all of Kurosawa's movies except for the Idiot. That's the only one I'm not really mm. fond of. But I all of the ones I. All the ones of all of the Kurosawa's films that I've seen, I'm still missing out on like maybe six or seven. Of well, them. he was very prolific. Like yeah, he, he made he, thirty he films in his life. Yeah, he didn't make this like you know mm. one film every five years. Like he he was mm. he took some gaps there. Like the seventies wasn't a prolific decade for him, but mostly he made a shit ton of movies. Mm. So not having seen all of them, it's fine. But um, yeah, I haven't gotten around to this one. Right. Uh, I've seen I've, I've never seen the Idiot. So uh, every Kurosawa film I've seen is has been good. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I, I'm taking your word for it. I mean, maybe I'll like the idiot when I see it someday. But like, I'm, I'm, I, I'm no expert, but I'm a big fan of Kurosawa. He's brilliant, yeah. and I've never seen a Kurosawa film that I didn't at least admire, mm. even if it didn't hit me in all the feels right away. And oftentimes, uh, like, I'll, they'll grow on me later mm. in a way that I. Uh, what was your first Kurosawa film? I'm curious. Uh, it was Seven Samurai. Okay. Yeah, I saw that when I was like around twelve or so. I, I remember I caught uh, Dreams when it was on Bravo. <laughs> and so I just and I didn't I didn't know who Kira Kurosawa was. Mm. In fact, the only thing I knew was that Martin Scorsese was in it, and he played uh, Vincent Van Gogh mm. uh, in a really incredible sequence. By the way, that whole <laughs> bit is amazing. That's a good movie. Um, so uh, so I'll take your word for it. Mm. Sounds awesome. I will have to check that out. Yeah, it's uh, considered lesser Kurosawa. It's just one of the films that's not talked about a lot. So I yeah. want to bring it up. The Bad Sleep Well. Awesome. Um, okay. Well, I'm going to take a bit of a turn, I guess, because we haven't done a horror movie yet. Mm. And I'm going to talk about one of the most influential horror movies ever. But beyond its influence, beyond the fact that it helped sort of cement a genre, it's also just an amazing motion picture. I'm talking about Bob Clark's Black Christmas. <laughs> That's the, I have that on like my runners up. Yeah, it's such a great movie. And not just because it's a good slasher, but because it's actually really smart and it's about interesting things. Um, Black Christmas is a horror movie from the mid-1970s, heavily influenced by uh, the giallo genre, uh, which, again, is the Italian um, serial killer mystery hybrid genre. It's really quite mm-hmm. fascinating. Uh, one of them ended up on my runners up. Um but, uh, yeah, it's about a sorority house in the 1970s at a college in Canada, I believe. Uh, and they are being stalked by a creep. There's some guy, near as they can tell his name is Billy, but that might not be true, uh, who is calling them on the phone, saying really weird, creepy things, mm-hmm. and seems to be speaking in multiple voices simultaneously, and they don't know how he's doing that. And he's freaking them out. Mm. And then over Christmas break... Uh, when most of the girls have gone home and the rest of them are distracted by their own lives, parties, boyfriends, etc., um, the girls start getting slaughtered one by one and being stuffed in the attic because that's where Billy lives. <laughs> Billy, really, really creepy. 
Um, the, those phone calls are, oh, yeah. are like next level terrifying. It's so weird because you think to yourself, I mean, you, we think of like Scream mm. as like the creepy phone call, and Scream is part of a tradition but that goes back to Black Christmas at least. Um, uh, what, what well, not, so I, I saw what you did, the William Castle movie. Yeah, um, what was what was the? Um, he knows oh, someone was watching me. Someone, someone was yeah. Uh, when, when a stranger calls. When a stranger calls. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. I'm yeah. sorry. That was, someone's watching me. It's a different movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the the whole like scary person on the phone thing has been around for quite a while. Mm. Um, and I think Black Christmas is the Naples Ultra of the scary phone call because man, none of those calls make any sense. You don't. You're not even entirely sure what Billy's thing is. You just know he is violently disturbed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you don't know what his game is. You don't know what he's up to. And Meanwhile, we're really getting knee-deep into the lives of the characters. And this is something that Black Christmas does that most of the imitators of Black Christmas weren't good enough to do. Mm. Every single character has their own story. Every single character is vividly realized. and This is something that I actually think... I know some people take issue with the new Black Christmas, beyond the whole people who are just sexist and think that, you know, they didn't like it for bullshit political reasons. That is the most recent, because the the Bob Clark film was also remade. Yeah, it was remade in the early 2000s-ish. It was like 2006-ish uh, around yeah, there. As, as a very straight-up violent slasher. It's quite fun. It's sloppy, but it's good. And then um, there's a, a, another one, which is not a remake. Uh, it, in, they, in they, any, they took inspiration, but it's not the same. The same title, anyway. But, but it's, it, what that one does best, I think, mm-hmm. is that it's it, much like the original. It makes every single character who has any screen time really rich. Yeah. And has really interesting dialogue and things to say. And they talk about stuff. And they talk about the things that are on their mind. The issues that are on their mind. And that is is in Bob Clark's original. I think they overdo the ending a bit, but it mostly works. Um, but uh, it's a rich cast of characters. They're all really funny. They're all really interesting. It's really sad when they die. Mm. It's never like, ah, oh, it's fun. They killed that person. I'm like, oh no, I like them. They were cool. Um, but it's also about something really potent, and that mostly comes from the Olivia Hussey character, who, uh, is Olivia Hussey is that I'm thinking of? That's her name, right? Olivia Hussey. Okay, yeah. I don't know why I had a... <laughs> mind blip um she is she has a boyfriend and she is pregnant and she wants to have an abortion and he doesn't and her desire to have her own bodily autonomy is wrecking him and it's destroying his like chance to have a big piano recital and everything and it's turning him into essentially billy and the oh. question is is he billy and the Regardless of the solution to who is Billy, what's really going on, um, the most important thing in the film is that by the end of it, he's indistinguishable. Yeah. Because ultimately, he doesn't care, even though, even though he's supposed to, he doesn't care about her as a person. He cares about her as a thing that mm-hmm. is giving him anxiety. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that is an incredibly potent, really feminist uh, exploration of uh, the the toxicity of, of men mm-hmm. and boy is it really smart about that it's really exciting about that it is very direct about it and on top of it all the cinematography is amazing if you ever get a chance to see this on the big screen you know if that if that exists anymore in the future please do it's gorgeous mm-hmm. it's such a good looking film <laughs> Bob Clark would eventually make like a whole bunch of like straight to video crap and it's really mm. sad because he clearly had such good chops as a filmmaker. He was a yeah, really he, excellent filmmaker early in his career in particular. Director for hire on like baby geniuses and karate yeah. dog and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and listen, I'm glad he got work <laughs> and stuff, but he clearly had better material in him and it's yeah. it's unfortunate because Black Christmas is a mm. classic for a reason. Um anyway, moving on. Uh I I have a horror film on my list as well. Uh-huh. Uh 
not at all influential. Uh, called Basket Case Two. Um, <laughs> two. To ba- specifically, specifically Basket two. Case Two. It's you know um, what? Fine. <laughs> I've seen it. It's amazing. It's great. It's amazing. Um, it it picks up right where the last one uh, left off, even though it took like like eight years to make. So the actors are noticeably older, even though they're recreating scenes from the first movie. Like it's supposed to take place like the minute yeah. after. And it's like, so uh, the, the premise of basket case is uh, a guy comes to New York city uh, t- with a bat, just holding a basket. It's like this big, like a wicker squ- basket. big like a square basket. wicker picnic, picnic basket. He's just carrying it in both hands, walking around the street. You wanted to of... say picnic basket, didn't you? No, I didn't. Okay, um, I didn't. <laughs> But now I'm thinking it. Yes. Uh, so he's carrying this picnic basket, and uh, we don't know what it is. What's in that basket? And he checks into this really dingy New York motel, and uh, who should be living in the basket but his twin brother, Belial. Mm-hmm. Belial is just this big mound of a head with, like, a yeah. big arm. It looks like a tumor with a mm. face and, like, mm. claws and carnivorous teeth. Uh, they were conjoined twins. Belial mm. was not uh, fully formed, and uh, his parents decided to use black market surgeons mm. to have Belial to forcibly them, yeah. removed because and they couldn't do it because it could potentially kill Belial. That would be like illegal and immoral. And the parents are like, fuck it, we don't care. One of them can live a normal life and then we'll just mm. kill Belial. Mm. And uh, our hero decided not to let that happen. He's been living with Belial this whole time and they're on a plan to kill everybody who forcibly separated them. Right. Yeah, boy, that's, is that's, that movie sleazy and gross? Oh golly, and weird. It, it's it's part of this like weird uh, guerrilla no wave uh, New York filmmaking trend, mm-hmm. uh, like or like school, the school of filmmakers. They're just running around shooting by the seat of their pants on yeah. a budget of nothing. Uh, Abel Ferrara, mm-hmm. William Lustig, like yeah. the Maniac is a good double feature with Basket Case. Yeah, like, yeah, for they sure. both like they were like they were shot without permits, you know. Yeah, yeah. And this is uh, this is Frank Henenlotter and. Frank Henenlotter had a little bit of a kookier sense of humor than William Lustig. Oh, especially some of his other movies. Like, you look at uh, Brain Damage sometimes. That movie mm. is just a, a damn hoot. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's very gross strange. and terrible, but it's good. You know? There's this weird alien that, that injects me with drugs from its mouth if I kill for it. And it's voiced by Zachary. <laughs> Zachary was one of, if not the first, mm. uh, like, horror Her TV hosts. hosts. Yeah. Like, who had, like, a weird persona. Like, welcome, everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, legend. He, Absolute yeah. legend. Um, yeah, Zach passed away at the age of like almost a hundred. I think yeah, he, he was, was very old. He, he lived a long it time. It was actually very recently that he passed away. Yeah. Um, but uh, Basket Case Two uh, is sort of like uh, Gremlins Two to Gremlins, or and that Aliens it just, to yeah, Alien. It, it just, just expands and exponentially. It, it becomes like cartoony and huge all of a sudden. Yeah. So at, at at the end of uh, Basket Case. Um, Belial and his brother end up uh, evading the cops and they're taken into the uh, the home of this kindly old lady who runs a, a home on the outside of outside of New York City uh, for just extremely mutated people mm-hmm. and the, the the makeup the weird bizarre makeup effects they have to depict the uh, the the freakish characters are spectacular. Yeah. It's really just, it's Mm. it's astoundingly, not only is it vivid Mm. and uh, again, it's all practical. So it's really just incredible to look at the imagination Mm. where they, and I really love Frank Allen for this because he, because this is not a movie about how all of them are horrible people in some Texas chainsaw massacre kind of way. 
they're really quite lovely. Mm-hmm. And when the they're, movie they're... descends into violence, it's a tragedy mm-hmm. that they ha- that they feel well, it's, it's necessary to do so. It's because there's like reporters like hounding them and trying to out them and get them yeah. you know, out into the public when really they're they're trying to hide and live peaceful yeah. lives. It, 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 their violence that they uh, take part in by the end is mostly self-defense. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it ultimately feels a little bit more like an X-Men thing, you know, where like there's these really cool people <laughs> living on there and like night breed. But like, I love Frank Hanlon Lauder because he wanted all of these people mm. uh, to be beautiful. Yeah. And they they're, are they're celebrated. Be- they're beautiful in a very haunting, very incredible way where you just want all of the masks and all of the molds that these uh, wonderful characters uh, were born from. They need to be in a museum. You need to be able to walk around and just appreciate these Mm. things as art because they're gorgeous, the makeup effects in this movie. There's a gigantic head they keep in a trunk and it's really good at singing opera and it's got like 400 teeth. There's another person who has... Uh, like a big swooping uh, set of dentures that kind of like swoops way off to the side. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, Belial gets a romance in this movie. There's an, a, a female version of Belial living at this home. And, yeah. Um, well, if you want to see Belial having sex... Uh, you will. <laughs> you will. <laughs> you really, really will. So Frank Henenlotter appreciated the bizarre and found beauty in in the traditionally ugly and uh, was just willing to go way out there with it and also go really far to try to gross you out a little bit as well with violence and gore. I love Frank Henenlotter. (laughs) (laughs) I I love his kooky violent sensibility. I love his cartoonish sense of humor and I love his uh, proclivities toward uh, extreme genre cinema and he's yeah. a big uh, he was a very famously or is, is a, uh, a fan of Herschel Gordon Lewis one of the mm. the gore cheapy gods yeah I, I, I think Frank Hannon I was late to the game on Frank Hannon Lauder like mm. I didn't explore him for a long time and um, I love Basket Case I think Basket Case is great mm. exactly the way it is but it took me forever to see Basket Case too, and then I finally did because you insisted mm. and this is a movie I wish I discovered much younger yeah, yeah. I discovered um, I, I still maintain that although we've had a couple of good ones the best X-Men movie is Nightbreed <laughs> that's fair uh, it, it captures all the themes it captures all the wonder it captures all the the elements about it that should be you know sort of like oh weird like but cool mm. you know um, but uh, that's a movie about monsters and Clive Barker loves monsters and what he hates are people who don't love monsters and Basket Case 2 is very much of a piece with that mm. and seriously just if you just want to just get a glimpse and just get figure out what whether or not you want to do this just do a google image search on basket case <laughs> too and just look and just feel like wow just marvel at you kind of just you kind of just have awesome to makeup. see it like it's pretty damn cool I, it didn't make my runners up but i now i wonder if it should have because it's really cool <laughs> it's a really cool pick well i'm gonna move on. actually while we're on the topic of uh, sequels that arguably outshine the original, and I say arguably because I really love the original. Like, this is not no slight. Mm. Um, this is a movie that came very, very close to being my number one. It is one of the most imaginative movies of all time. It's a very transformative movie that completely changes uh, mm. sort of the whole tone of the franchise. 
Uh, and it is Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, that's on my list too, actually. So we can both talk about Bride of Frankenstein. Bride of Frankenstein is amazing. So um, to recap, the original Frankenstein, directed by James Whale, mm. uh, is an adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's about a mad scientist, and he gets a god complex and decides that he's going to take pieces of dead people and use his scientific know-how to create a new person a yeah, new form of life can like yeah stitch together corpses and just shock life into that thing yeah. and create a person yeah uh and uh, and then he does and he neglects to treat it like a human being with a soul and mm-hmm. it ends up biting them in the ass really bad and boris karloff gives an uncanny performance as a corpse who slowly learns how to be how to be a person mm-hmm. uh, i still consider that one of the great movie performances ever it's it's in, it's incredibly poignant uh it's weirdly poetic yep uh, it is scary. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the images that come from this movie have been so overplayed and so satirized that it's in many ways difficult to just appreciate them for what they are anymore. Like the the crowd with the rakes and yeah. the monster being chased yeah, into the windmill. Those are cliches mm. now, but at the time mm. this was relatively fresh for the most part. The scariest shot in the movie uh, fr- is not Frankenstein. It's the father carrying the corpse of his child <sighs> through the town. That's so sad. It's like uh, there's a big festival in the town, and the, the it's a, this big tracking shot where the, the father is just completely destitute, carrying the dead body of his daughter in yeah. his arms uh, through the streets, and everybody behind him is just sort of hushing up as he kind of staggers past. Yeah, because this isn't, like, mm-hmm. sensational. This is just a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail on Frankenstein, because if we ever get to the Fs, I suspect we'll be talking about it again. Oh, okay. Uh, but Bride of Frankenstein uh, came out several years later, and uh, it kind of went nuts <laughs> like James Whale had all of a sudden because Frankenstein was a huge smash hit it made money so yeah imagine bigger budget a lot more special effects a bigger sense of humor and way more gay yeah oh yeah <laughs> uh, James Whale was about as openly gay as you could get in Hollywood mm-hmm. in the 1930s uh, and um, you can see in some of his films that it seems to be informing the text a lot whether or not it was like super intentional i think there's some debate but mm. it's hard not to see it once you know it's there or even before then um but basically the the gist is this at the end of the original frankenstein they took some liberties with the book and frankenstein and his monster they like died when like a windmill was on fire yeah, and it's very it dramatic and cool and uh they open <laughs> this movie opens in a parlor room where everyone's talking about this amazing book they read called Frankenstein. And Mary Shelley, you're here. Wasn't it great that book you wrote? And she's like, yeah, it's a shame that I didn't, you didn't find out about what happened next. And they're like, something happened next? And Mary Shelley's like, sure. Well, you say some people are in a drawing room. It's it's Byron, Shelley, and Mary. Uh, whatever. Uh, I, don't Mary care about, I don't care about them. I care about Mary Wollstonecraft. <laughs> and... Um, Percy Shelley, fat. But I love it. It would be like if at like the end of like at the beginning of X two X Men United, yeah. like it was just like in the Marvel office, and everyone's like, "Congratulations on that movie, Stan!" And Stan's like, "Oh wait, wait, wait till you hear what happens next." <laughs> and then it's just him narrating it. It's great. It's, it's so weird, and it just it just completely blows the fourth wall open. It's amazing. Mm. Um, and then it turns out the monster survived. Dr. Frankenstein survived. Dr. Frankenstein thinks the monster is dead and is perfectly willing to go about his life. And then uh, his lover from college shows up, Dr. Pretorius. And he's just like, hey, remember when we did all those experiments with the dead? I want to do more of them. And Dr. Frankenstein's like, no, I want to be uh, heterosexual with my wife. And Dr. Pretorius is like, no. 
<laughs> You're not doing that. Oh, oh good, good. Dear me, no. Come up to my room and I'm going to show you tubes with people inside. Um, the Frankenstein monster, this is where he learns how to speak and befriends somebody and then the person is blind and then their family shows up and they find out. It's really sad. Um, but the monster is lonely. Mm. And he basically teams up with Dr. Pretorius to force Dr. Frankenstein to make The Bride of Frankenstein. Um, it is a movie that is about loneliness. It is a movie that is about death. It is a movie oh, that... Sorry, there you go. Uh, it is a movie that is about outsiders in all forms. Uh, it is a movie that is also incredibly funny. Yeah. It's a hoot. Una O'Connor is, is one of the uh, comedic geniuses of her time. Yes. She plays, uh, if, if, you, if you've seen a movie from the 30s or 40s with a funny, shrill old lady, that was probably Una O'Connor. Una O'Connor, and, and, and she was in other stuff, too. She was mm. really prolific if you really start watching movies from the 30s and 40s. Mm. She was everywhere. She was in so yeah, many her, Best Picture nominees. Her and, and Dwight Fry as well, yeah. who, who played, um, he wasn't named Igor in Frankenstein. He was actually called Fritz. Yeah. Uh, and Igor didn't show up until the uh, the sequel after Bride of Frankenstein. Son of Frankenstein. Son of Frankenstein. Played by Bela Lugosi. Bela Lugosi played Igor. Yeah. And, uh, who eventually gets his own brain transplanted into the monster. So Igor becomes Frankenstein. Mm. It's kind of a weird franchise, actually. <laughs> yeah, those, of... those sequels go way off the rails. Yeah, by the time we hit Ghost of Frankenstein, we're just completely in, <laughs> in weird territory. Um, but in any case, Bride of Frankenstein is a game changer in a lot of ways. It feels so modern. It feels so fresh. It's visually, just in terms of its cinematic language and cinematography, so unlike almost anything else being made at the time. It's subversive. It's kooky. I say that word a lot this podcast, and I don't know why. It's really brilliant. It deserves its reputation, and we can move on. Um, if, if there is a criticism about Bride of Frankenstein, mm. it's that... Apart from, you know, uh, some tragic elements with the monster and especially the ending, it's not particularly scary. No. It's really, no. it's really enervating. It's yeah. incredibly energetic. Uh, yeah, it's very, very funny. Uh, it's, you it's, really, it's sad sometimes. It's really dramatic, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel at all like a horror movie. No, and that's, and that's fine, I think. Mm. As I said, it's transformative. And you were talking about the sort of the transition from uh gremlins to gremlins 2 mm. earlier and i think that's that's this all over yeah uh i think this is uh you know this is a horror comedy i think some people think that in order to be a horror comedy it needs to be like equal parts and like no like mm. it just needs to have <laughs> horror elements like ghostbusters yeah. is a horror comedy they oh, for sure. ghosts like it, so that it's not it's a comedy film with monsters yeah. in it. it's got horror elements that, that's all we need Really, so it's a horror comedy. They turned, the, they had a straight up horror movie with a couple of funny bits, and they made it into a horror comedy. Fine, mm. it's great. It's super great, and I love it. And mm. even that's daring and bold. Like we can take that for granted now. But yeah, yeah. the risk. Um, um uh, one second. You have like five left, right? Uh, yeah. I, I actually have a couple of comedies on my list. Okay. Um, speaking of funny movies, I'm gonna have to play catch up at some point. Mm. But why don't you move on? Um. A movie we bring up all the time, and I'm going to bring it up again, is because you haven't seen it yet. Damn it! Is is Brain Donors? Oh my God, uh, I love you for putting Brain Donors <laughs> in the top ten of all time. That's so great. Uh, Brain Donors is one, uh, one of those films I stumbled upon. Uh, I actually wanted to see it in theaters when it was originally called Lame Ducks. You I saw, saw it in theaters? No, I saw a standee uh, and like and, and it closed uh, when I was on my way to the theater to see it. It was <laughs> in theaters for that short amount of time. <laughs> Uh, did, you, did you take that joke from Major League Two? Um, because that bit, because no, there's that whole bit. No, where I, Wesley, I, I, it's been a long time since I've seen Major League Two. There's so a bit where Wesley Snipes. If I, is, if I did, I don't remember Wesley Snipes' character from Major League One, who is now played, I think, by Omar Epps. 
Uh, he's they, they recast the role. They recast the role. Uh, they, they they couldn't grab him. But like the whole thing is like he spent the off season making an action movie with Jesse the Body Ventura. And when they're talking about um, you know the movie, mm. they're just like, yeah, I went to go see it, but it closed on my way to the theater. Yeah, that, that's an old Hollywood joke. Yeah, it closed on the way to the theater. Um, but brain donors uh, eventually discovered uh, by kooks like me at Blockbuster Videos. Uh, it's a riff on the Marx Brothers. Uh, yep. And it says in the closing credits that it was suggested by A Night at the Opera. Which even is though, like, even though the writers of A Night at the Opera aren't credited, it's like like based on the screenplay. That's like saying I Frankenstein was suggested by the works of Mary Shelley. Yeah. yeah. Like, pretty big suggestion that you oh. took. Now, look, apart from the name Frankenstein, what really in that movie has anything to do with Mary Shelley? Here's what offends me about that. Mm. At no point did they mention Mary Shelley. Nope, she at least deserves. She at least deserves a cursory mention. Well, the latest uh, Invisible Man, H.G. Wells, isn't mentioned in the credits And I think that's bullshit, too. That's also BS. At least in the thank yous, for God's sake. This is very, very heavily uh, lifted from the Marx Brothers. Uh, There's a Groucho, a Harpo, and a Chico-type characters. Uh, The Groucho is played by John Turturro, who plays a character named Roland T. Flack Pfizer, a very Marx Brothers name. Very much so. Uh, the I miss when comedies had people with funny names. It still happens. It's pretty rare, though. It's I feel like the... everyone should have a funny name if they're in a comedy. <laughs> uh, and uh, the Chico character is played by uh, British, the late British comedian Mel Smith, who is also a film director. You might he... remember him in uh, uh, The Princess Bride. The Princess Bride. Yeah. Uh, I think he directed that film, Radioland Murders. Uh and uh, the underrated film, I think. And the uh, Harpo character is played by stand-up comedian Bob Nelson, yeah. uh, who used to be really funny. And uh, <laughs> l- look up his early stand-up, uh, and then yeah, l- his later stuff. No, uh, but a lot of his shtick was he would like uh, juggle handkerchiefs, and it was a lot of silent shtick. So uh, they put a lot of that in the movie. And the story is a very Marx Brothers story. It is uh, about. Uh, a very Margaret Dumont character played by an actress named uh, Nancy Marchant who uh, inherits a ballet or has to form a ballet company at the behest of her late husband. Yeah. It's a stipulation in his will. Mm. And uh, because he's a grifter, the Roland T. Fleckfizer character says, oh, well, I can do that. I'll take all the money you got and decides to even... <laughs> oh, I have to make a ballet with it. I have to uh, make a fine. ballet. Fine. So he has to... <laughs> Make a ballet company out of all of yeah. this. And of it's, course, it, there's bad guys in it's it. It's basically then, a very, very loose remake mm, of Night at the Opera, yeah. and it all culminates with a quote unquote funny ba- mm. uh, uh, ballet. And by quote unquote, I mean get rid of those quotes. <laughs> that is one of the funniest sequences it's, in movie history. Oh, good God. Well, the whole, the whole movie does have that kind of. Uh, really quick scattershot Marx Brothers type dialogue yeah. done really well. Almost By all of the lines yeah. are genuine zingers. Yeah. And, and all, and the cast just sells them, even when it's like a, a really awful joke. There's some sexist jokes in this and that's, it, there, it, there are some inc- incredibly yeah. sexist jokes. The Roland T. Flackfizer character is just a, a horrible womanizer. And the, yeah. there's a lot of jokes to that effect. Yeah, A couple of fat jokes. Mm. Like, I don't think we need mm. it, but whatever. Yeah. Well, yeah. not whatever it sucks, but like mm. there's so many that they just sort of like sort of, just fly on by, no. you know. It's like it's like they fired a gun at us and they missed. <laughs> like, I, I disapprove of the firing, mm. but they missed, so mm. we can move on. But the, the the jokes come so quick, you would be forgiven for watching it a couple times just so you get every line of dialogue. Yeah, I mean, charity work. I collect these for people less fortunate than ourselves who can't afford pornography. Uh, <laughs> little, little bits like that. Uh, it's not as good as the Marx Brothers. Nothing can be. I, 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 but. Okay. 
but it it's it's matching the Marx Brothers. Yeah. It's doing the Marx Brothers well. I feel like if it were like maybe a little bit more tightly edited, it would be just as good as the Marx Brothers. I, I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna say something right now that I don't think we we say out loud a lot. Yeah. There are different levels of Marx Brothers. Okay. This is true. <laughs> there, there's Night at the Opera, Horse Feathers, mm-hmm. Duck Soup, a couple others. All, all of the ones with the four Marx Brothers are gold. Mm. Yeah, back when Zeppo was yeah. still a uh, part of them. And then I think he quit to become an, one of the first agents in Hollywood. Mm. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on that, somebody, but I think that's true. Uh, but uh, yeah, th- their early years, they had just one amazing film after another. And then their later ones, they're a little hit and miss. Mm. I would put Brain Donors above most of the later ones. That, like, you know, I'd that's rather, fair. I'd rather watch Brain Donors than like a night in Casablanca. I think yeah. that's I think Brain Donors is more consistently funny. Um you, you still can't beat the Marx Brothers, they were the original geniuses, and like this is no duck soup, but this is better than some of the Marx Brothers movies. Mm. Uh and it's really, really consistently funny throughout, mm. and man so we... just damn that ballet just kills me every time. <laughs> the funniest I don't want to ruin it for you, but like the there's, duck. There's a there's a duck suit that there's comes a into guy play. In a duck suit, and uh. it's the funniest <laughs> fucking thing because they actually get the contrast. You know, mm. it's not like the, the people are actually trying to put on a dignified ballet. So yeah. every time they every time they do like a whole wall of slinkies show up, it really just is a wonderful contrast mm. as opposed to something which is all zany all the time. Like they they understand that like in order for the Marx Brothers to work, you need to have real sticks in the mud. Mm. You are constantly being like up upended. Well, that that's and that's why we had a, a another comedic genius, Margaret Dumont, yeah. to play opposite them. Margaret Dumont was an absolute genius. Never let anyone tell you otherwise. Duck Soup would not be funny without her. The, well, and you she need and her. and she was in a lot of the Marx Brothers movies, and none of them would work unless they had somebody to to match them yeah. in, in terms of their energy and give them all the setup. And she worked with W.C. Fields. Mm. She's just an underappreciated mm. legend of comedy. Yeah. I just, yeah. again, it, it, a, a straight person in a comedy routine doesn't get enough credit because mm. they're the ones who keep feeding the broad comedians yeah. material. Without them, there's no joke. Mm. It's just silliness for yeah, its own you're, sake. Yeah, you're, you're Margaret Dumont. You're, you're Bud Abbott. Uh, yeah. Bud Abbott was just pissed off at Blue Costello. Honestly, that's kind of that, why I was never super into Abbott and Costello, just because Bud kind of pissed me off. Like, dude, Costello's cute. He's fun. What are you doing? He's cute. Why are you so mad at him all the time? He's funny. <laughs> what are you doing? Just why, are you like, mean? why are you being mean? Because it's because he's frustrating. No, well, he like, is, he gets, but he's, he's kind of sweet. I, mm. I never really. That's my only thing about Abbott and Costello. That that's like my favorite bit in Abbott and Costello made Frankenstein. It's the monsters that are funny. Like, <laughs> like eventually Abbott and Costello get to like when they're running around the castle, they're great. But like mm. mostly, I just want to get to the monsters because I don't know. Bud kind of ruins it a little bit for me, but just the attitude. But, uh, yeah, Brain Donors might be one of my favorite comedies of all time. Uh, it's uh, one I like. I try to bring up at every available opportunity. It's yeah. one we bring up on this show all the damn time. And I'm going to keep on bringing it up until you've all seen it. You know what? I, it wasn't on my top ten, and I'm not going to add it to my top ten, but I am adding it to my official writer's up. <laughs> okay. I actually don't know why it wasn't there. Right. That's ridiculous. Thank you so much. I'm sure um, there's others we have. Like, I, sure. I didn't I didn't think of Branded to Kill. Oh, I haven't seen Branded to Kill. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, let's should, should have uh, considered it. Um, well, let's uh, let's move on. Yeah, and uh, while we are talking, I mean, what uh, the, what was the original name for this one? Lame ducks. Lame ducks was the original title. Okay, here's our segue: the birds. <laughs> the birds. The birds. The birds and the birds. Yeah, there you go. Uh, the birds is an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Perhaps you've seen it. It has some birds in it. Does it? 
couple of birds. Okay. Alfred Hitchcock uh, is considered the master of suspense. He helped codify what suspense could be in cinema. He didn't invent suspense, but mm-hmm. it's been argued that he has perfected it. And many of the cinematic techniques that we use to convey suspense were refined mm. by Alfred Hitchcock, if not invented, and some arguably were. Um, he's He's a creep. In real life, no arguing about it. But if you removed Alfred Hitchcock from history, there would be a big Alfred Hitchcock-shaped hole left. And everyone would be like, where did all these things come from? That guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made great movie after great movie. Even his worst movies tend to be very interesting. Uh, and one of his very best movies is The Birds. And it's the movie he made after Psycho. Psycho kind of split movies in half. Where there was stuff before Psycho before and Psycho after, Psycho. after Psycho. And I think that's actually fair to say. There's only a handful of movies you can say that about. Like Star Wars is another one where all of a sudden the possibilities just opened up. Hmm. Psycho not only was like violent and uh, explored a lot of themes that were considered taboo in Hollywood. Uh, but it also broke a lot of cinematic rules. Um, rules about storytelling. Rules about, um, you know when you can kill a protagonist and what the justification has to be for various crimes. And it feels like after psycho, he was very eager to play a little bit more and get a little bit more weirdly conceptual. Hmm. So here's the plot of the birds. One day, all the birds in the world start attacking us. That's it. No reason. No, no reason whatsoever is given the reason and I think the movie almost like literally like points at the camera at one point and says it is because the audience is watching. Mm. That's it. It's, it's a little meta actually, because it's only happening because something needs to happen. Uh, it's a story ostensibly of a young debutante who uh, meets a handsome lawyer by chance at a pet store and decides to, because she, she, she thinks he's cute and fun and he doesn't let her, you know, walk mm. all over him the way a lot of people do. She buys him uh, a gift and she's going to take it to his home in Bodega Bay uh, in the hopes of maybe igniting a romance. While she's there, uh, weird shit starts to happen. People start getting attacked by birds kind of randomly. Uh, until uh, one day her interloping ways finally seem to activate this entire giant bird strike. And birds just start killing everybody. And they're starting to do weirdly elaborate things that lead to like stuff blowing up. And <laughs> it gets completely epic. There's no score mm. at all. Uh, what instead we have is uh, absolute legendary uh, composer Bernard Herrmann. Uh, consulting with the the sound effects team so that the cacophony of birds will serve the same function as a score. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, it's horrifying. It's cynical. One of the most daring things it did initially uh, was it didn't have a the end credit. Mm. The characters the movie... just exited the movie. <laughs> yeah, and it's not like all of a sudden everything's fine either. The movie just stops. And implies that this is going to keep going. It really isn't concerned with rules. Mm. It is concerned with terror. It is concerned uh, with just this sort of fascinating conversation about why stories exist. Mm. And whether or not we really need the form around the function. Yeah, Can we just do the thing without really caring too much and that's not to say there aren't wonderful characters in it there are everyone in the cast is wonderful memorable characters galore but it's not about its plot at all it's an inciting incident 
that's it. And it's so sparse and it's so daring in that that it gets away with it. It's incredible, scary. It's a brilliant motion picture, and I love it. I, I appreciate its its meta aspects more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, the, the the fact that it it is sort of stripped of its pretense. Uh, when we go to see uh, genre films, we're there to see the violence, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Haneke kind of uh, pointed this out in Funny Games. Yeah, uh, both of his Funny Games about how in going to see the movie, you are uh, implicated in the violence that's happening on screen because you're there to see it. That would be a great double feature, and I think that would really the birds help and Funny Games. I yeah. think if you put Funny Games and then show people the birds, and you're thinking about Funny Games, you might see what we're talking about in the birds a little bit more clearly because it's yeah. a little indirect. But I think it's mm. all there. But yeah, uh, so. Why Why do you need a plot machination? Why do you need to bother with all of this screenwriterly stuff when we know the audiences are just here to see the mayhem? If the mayhem is random, it's pure. Yeah. It's all we want is yeah. the mayhem. And, and Hitchcock is, is smart enough to know that we're not going to care about the mayhem if we don't care about the characters, so he doesn't, like, just rush it. Mm. But he also doesn't explain it. And yeah. he doesn't make sure, like... You know, oh, well, of course, if we turn off the nuclear power plant, that's what's causing all yeah, the... Yeah. That doesn't turned, fucking matter. There, there was... Or, it's not or, about um, machination. Or there there was a uh, rather brilliant remake of The Birds called Birdemic, Shock and Terror, <laughs> uh, which which explains very explicitly over and over again why they're, the bird clip art is attacking people uh, in that movie. It's very cheap film. Yeah, it's, it's notoriously bad outsider yeah. kind of movie. I, I actually don't find it entertainingly bad. I think it's just inept. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's like, it's, it's so strange, but yeah, it's so inept. Like it's difficult to watch after a yeah, while. It's not like the room where it's kind get, of fascinating. Yeah, get get like the yeah. riff tracks version and it's completely entertaining. Yeah. That's again. the best way to do it. Um, yeah. Th- that there's no explanation, uh, reveals the purity of cinema. We don't need, uh, we're not here to necessarily emotionally connect with people. We like to say that that's why we're here, yeah. but we're here to see people get attacked by birds. How bad would it be if it was just 90 minutes of people getting attacked by birds? <laughs> and again, Hitchcock knows how not to get you bored. He understands pacing. He yeah. understands, um, you know, building to things gradually for mm. maximum effect. So it's not just tiresome. Yeah, there, there's uh, movies like uh, like The Raid yeah. or or Dread, these sort of just wall-to-wall action pictures that are nothing but mayhem. There's little character set up. There's no context really given. It's just action. Yeah, and there's a good way to do that and a bad way to do yeah, that. Yeah, and if the action's good enough, why do you need all that dead weight? Yeah. Why do you need the screenplay stuff? Yeah. A lot of critics say, oh, well, it's not much of a movie. No, that's kind of pure cinema. It's fine. Mm. It, it can be done really, really well. And I'm not mm. saying it and again. I find the first raid a little exhausting after a while. <laughs> I actually think the pacing kind of falters eventually. Mm. I think yeah. Dread ultimately does it better, even though the, obviously the fighting isn't as cool. The, the raid two is full of spectacular action, but it's two and a half hours long. It really it feels goes, bloated, yeah, doesn't it? But yeah. God, the action's amazing. And they get that, like the, the baseball dude who's yeah. like killing people with baseballs. It's like, yeah. okay, where are we now? I don't I know. No idea what happened. On, but it's really cool. Who are these characters? Who are they working for? But I mean, the birds I think is a, a film that sort of lays the groundwork for that kind of thing. And yeah. uh, it's really excellent and holds up really good. Mm. Uh, and I highly recommend everybody see it. And now, mm. uh, since I think you're ahead of me, I'm going to do one more. All right. Um, let's see. Let me, let me consult my magic list here. Whatever. 
What have I not done yet? Uh, here's something I think you're going to agree with me on, even if it's not on your list. Mm. Uh, and it's there's no connective tissue whatsoever. Uh, the Best Years of Our Lives. Oh, that's a great movie. Yeah, it's not on my list, but that's yeah. a great movie. Uh, the Best Years of Our Lives is one of those movies where I had heard for many years... Uh, that this is one of the great motion pictures. The great this, American films. Like one of the great American mm. movies, and it's about World War II veterans and an ensemble cast of famous people you should know. And it feels, when you hear about that kind of thing, like it's supposed to be a challenge. Like, it's it's like homework. I'll um, find a flaw, yeah. something like that. <laughs> and then you watch it and go, shit, this is one of the best movies ever made. God it, damn it. <laughs> it's so fucking it, it good. It really is. Um <laughs> What I admire about the best years of our lives, uh, the best years of our lives is about uh, veterans coming home from World War II yeah. and trying to reclimatize to life back home. And this is really fresh at the time. This is 1946. Th- yeah, this, 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 this is the most this impressive. Is in the moment. Yeah. And uh, there are plenty of coming home movies, including Coming Home, there you go. Uh, Born on the Fourth of July, Rolling Thunder, uh, yeah. Dead uh, Presidents, d- d- yeah. yeah uh, uh, um, Jarhead, yeah. All, all various Jacob's wars. Jacob's Ladder, fuck it. Yeah, even Jacob's Ladder is a Vietnam yeah. movie. Uh, all of these films about the soldier's experience and how uh, being war sort of uh, di- disturbed them, touched them, marked them. Uh, yeah, changed them. Ch- changed them. Yeah, permanently. Tra- traumatized them permanently and uh, physically and mentally. Those films all had, all those other films I mentioned, all had context. Yeah. They were all made years after the fact. Um, yeah, maybe not. Mo- coming home coming was really home close, closer, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but like, uh, mostly, yeah, mostly, yeah. We kind of like we're looking back on the war and trying to make more sense of it with modern eyes. And yeah. that the best years of our lives can be one of the best coming home movies of all time. Mm-hmm. While the war was just barely over, yeah, uh, is no small achievement. It was really, really wise about the effect war had on. Uh, American soldiers right away. And we've been living with that ever since. And it's kind of astonishing that we're going back to war when we know we knew it was in popular entertainment. This thing won best picture at the Academy Awards. Yeah. Why, and, and, why it's, we, and it's yeah. Why, why do we why do we keep I, insisting? I, I keep on, hearing people every time there was some excuse for a war, or some military conflict that we mm-hmm. see. There would always be a lot of people talking about it on the news or on social media or whatever newspaper editorials talking about why this one is justified. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying there has never been a reason to go into armed conflict because we've had some mm-hmm. civil war. We we had to make sure that. We, we ended slavery. That was important. That's yeah. the thing. But like... Someday that war will be over. <sighs> Got the air out of the room that time, but fair enough. Sorry. But like, well, regardless. Mm. Um, but I'm like, uh, I read books. Mm. Like, I I read poetry by people in, from who were like in World War One, And like, mm. I pay attention to movies made by people who had been to war or written by people who had been to war. And I know it's the shittiest, worst thing ever. And literally every single time it happens, people come home and like, that sucked and that was awful. And mm. we should never have fucking done that. We should never have let it get that bad that that was became that that felt necessary and every single thing that happened was a fucking nightmare and it's changed us forever and it's awful and we're going to tell our mm. kids never to do it two generations later all of a sudden kylo ren mm. has just <laughs> jesus I, I tell him i have a lot more respect for force awakens like i really do than like my if, initial if, viewing because they, they kind of nailed that shit <laughs> like yeah, two, it, it two was... generations away from fascism everyone's just like maybe no fuck you no <laughs> what are you doing like, 
that film made so much more sense like the following year yeah. like, like it came out in 2015 and yeah if it had come out come out a year later it would have made a lot more sense yeah anyway but uh yeah the best years of our lives mm-hmm. is incredibly thoughtful and sweet and it's and it's really simple uh it's a story of uh three soldiers played by frederick march dana andrews and harold russell they went to world war ii and they came back and they're all changed in some way frederick march is a family man uh, who takes the drinking? Uh, Dana Andrews is a young soldier who feels like his whole life should be ahead of him, but his business prospects have washed up. He got married in like a shotgun marriage before the war because he didn't know he was going to survive, and now it's eating him away because they don't really belong together. And he's seriously considering having an extramarital affair with Frederick March's daughter, mm. um, and that's eating them away too. And then they're both they're all wonderful and I, I i hate to say something like he steals the movie but the centerpiece of the movie really is harold russell who won two academy awards for this mm-hmm. <laughs> uh harold russell was uh, uh a double amputee mm. uh, it was an explosion it was a horrible thing and yeah he ended he, up with he, two with two hooks yeah he lost his hands yeah and um he plays um a soldier who lost his hands and is trying to reacclimate to that and the movie is really impressively frank about everything that he's going through and how much of it is about him trying to maintain his dignity mm-hmm. and how the people around him really love him, but they don't know the best way to deal with him. And he knows that and how that leads to resentment, even when everyone wants the best thing. And it's about him, well, you know, dealing with ableism and it's so really impressive. There's a lot of ableism. There's a lot of that sort of, uh, He's fighting very you know, tooth and nail against that, oh, uh, you poor thing kind of attitude yeah. that people are, are approaching him with. It's like, oh my goodness, what a horrible, it's like, just let it go. Look, look do you, like, do you want a milkshake or not? Yeah, yeah, I'm, trying to, like, I'm trying to move on. Do we do mind? Mm. Like, and it's, it's, again, it really tackles the issue impressively well, especially for the time. Uh, he won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. He also won a special Academy Award for his representation of what soldiers were going through, mm. um, which has argued people, the Academy gave that to him because they thought he wasn't going to win Best Supporting Actor. <laughs> they ended up winning two Oscars for the same role Great, in fine, the same fine. year. I think it's the only time that's ever happened. <laughs> he deserved it. Fine. Oh, he, he totally he did. did. An excellent he's, a, job. he's incredible. Like, it's he really was a really, really good performance. Everyone in this movie is amazing. William Wyler is one of the greatest filmmakers in Hollywood mm. history, and this is the kind of thing where it shows where... Again, it's a melodrama. It's just people at home dealing with lives and trauma, and it's riveting. Mm. It's riveting. The cinematography doesn't call attention to itself, but it's really sharp and smart mm. and tells the story beautifully well. It's well, romantic the, and sad and the, deals with issues like suicide mm. in ways that are impressively frank for the era. And holy shit, is it good? Yeah, and it, it, it's another big one. It's about three hours long, but yeah. it, 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 needs, it needs that space. And it, the pacing is so and, damn good. And there, there is one it. really showy scene, though, and it's probably the best uh, scene in the movie, which is, which is when uh, I think it's the Frederick March character. Hmm. Um, Oh, no, it's, uh, no, it's where he's uh, he's just sort of at his wits end. Mm. He's tried working in like a department store, but he oh, just, that's Dane Andrews. Or is the Dane Andrews character? Andrews excuse me, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, the yeah. Dane Andrews character uh, just doesn't really know what to do with his life, and he goes uh, just sort of on this long walk and finds the abandoned airfield, yeah, where all the World War II planes are just sort of parked. And yeah, he's they're, like, just gonna, they're just going to ride these yeah. these relics from a, a battle that are just never going to fly again. It's like, oh well, this is me, and he just sort of sits yeah. in the plane thinking. Well, here we are. This is all I got now. I'm, yeah. I'm an old machine. <laughs> yeah. God, it's good. Yeah, it's just good, good visual metaphor. Amazing motion picture. All right, what you got um, next? Um, Come on, do it, man. Do it what? what? Tell us your next film, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my next film, um, 
When I think about this movie, I want to sing the theme song just in full voice, even if it's in a quiet alleyway and I disturb the neighbors. It's uh, Blazing Saddles. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering, like, what you were possibly, like, thinking of. Hmm. Is it, like, The Bodyguard? Because that's got a oh, good well, theme song. Oh, well, that's true. That, it's um, you know? a Dolly Parton song. But, yeah. you know, big yeah. barn burner. I can't the, sing that. That right. I maybe, don't have the pipes for maybe, it. Maybe The Little Mermaid? The, the Blittle Yeah, <laughs> you know. I, I knew we were going to get silly after. I want to bleed where the people I want to bleed all of people. Uh, no, it's Blazing Saddles. Okay, uh, it's a good film. One of uh, two excellent films that Mel Brooks made in 1974. It just made one right after the other. Yeah. The other one was Young Frankenstein. What a mm. damn achievement. Two of the greatest comedies of all time, one year. All in, uh, yeah, in the same year. Good golly. Uh, this uh, this is a film that operated by the principle, never give a saga an even break. That's what they put on the poster. And uh, and no, he doesn't. Uh, what, I, what I love about Blazing Saddles is it's... It takes all of the old tropes from Westerns. It's a big, it's a spoof of Westerns. And, uh, you know, it's evil land snatcher played by Harvey Corman is trying to grab a little town called Rockridge. And, uh, they need, a, a heroic they need, sheriff. To well, protect well, them. they need, they need a heroic sheriff to protect them. But Harvey Corman realizes, well, we can't have like a sheriff that they'll actually respect. Yeah. And he's so, like in uh, politics too. Yeah. So he has some control over this. So uh, his plan is to uh, install a sheriff that they would really, really hate. Now, he knows that they're all horrendously racist. Because mm-hmm. so it's, it's the 19th century. Uh, yeah, because yeah. it... it, it <laughs> Most white people were. Yes. And, uh, yeah, this, this film is very free with its racial language. The The screenplay was co-written by uh, Richard Pryor. Luca, get off the thing. And, <laughs> and so he, he uh, hires okay. uh, Sheriff Bart, played by Cleavon Little, who is fantastic in this movie. Uh, he he actually is charming and heroic in the face of some really horrendous shit that comes down from uh, all of the white people around him. And I like that it affects him somewhat too. Like, yeah, he's not just like un he, he he's not unfazed mm. by everything going around him. He but he knows they're morons, and mm. that helps a little. In fact, there's a, a wonderful speech by uh, Gene Wilder later in the movie. It was like, you, you expect them to treat you well. These are the this is these people are the common clay of the New West, you know, morons. Yeah. Uh, but in addition to being a really savvy racial commentary, it's also just a, a blisteringly funny slapstick farce. Yeah. Uh, it is just there isn't a, a joke that I think doesn't land in this movie. Ah, uh, they're all pretty damn good, aren't they? Yeah. And, yeah, and you might say, oh, no, they don't really age well. No, it was actually really wise, even at the time, about racial politics. Um, I've seen an extended cut of the movie that has some pretty dumb jokes. Uh, there's a bit... Because they have to cut out all the offensive material for television broadcasts. Yeah, but then the movie but was, then it was too, too short. short, so they had to put in some inoffensive material. So yeah. there's some missing scenes you might have seen on television. Yeah. I, I like a, some of the extra Mongo jokes. One of the Mongo jokes was uh, go get in a, a diving suit yeah. and go down underwater in this tiny lake they have. Mongo is around. Mongo is like this really big tough guy who uh, he's Harvey Corman's like enforcer. Yeah, like, he he's like the 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 red furred monster mm. in uh, Gossamer. In, in, in Gossamer, that's the monster. The same monster's name Gossamer. Isn't the monster's name Gossamer. Well, yeah. in, in case the monster Gossamer from Looney Tunes, you know, kind of silent and, and mm. not very quick witted, but intimidating. And uh, so they sends them in to get that sheriff out of town, and the sheriff just tricks him like Bugs Bunny. It's literally mm. a Bugs Bunny cartoon without the ears. It's really hilarious, um, and 
it has one of the best fourth wall breaking gags I've ever seen. Uh, the fourth It'll wall breaking gag. Is, <laughs> fourth wall breaking gag. You you make it seem like if someone just winks to the camera. Ooh. No, it's the third act just explodes. <laughs> it, it literally the third bursts act just out gives of the screen. Being, yeah. being like anything resembling a real movie mm. and turns into this like an incredible running gag where the final like fight and chase from Blazing Saddles like escapes and runs amok mm. onto the entire the Warner Brothers stage. lot. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, gets into other movies mm. and it's it's really really funny until the the climax takes place on a screen at the chinese theater where the villain has decided to hide at grauman's yeah. chinese and he's, gonna, and he's watching yeah, he's watching watch the, watching his own movie yeah it's, it's damn funny i actually don't know why this isn't on my list um mm. i think it didn't occur to me okay you know you look through a list of every movie that begins with the letter b eventually your eyes glaze over and you miss one yeah and uh, i think i just missed this one and just it didn't occur to me until too late it's too late now i'm not going to replace a movie that i was thoroughly intending to recommend and give some space to but yeah this totally belongs on on a proper list of the best movies that begin with the letter b and i'm glad you remembered it thank you mm-hmm. um damn 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 funny classic is what they, not is it your favorite mel brooks movie uh, that's a, that's a rough one. I, I fell in love with Mel Brooks when I saw Spaceballs when I was a kid, which pulls a lot of the same gags where there's a lot of addressing the, the camera directly. Uh, my favorite scene in the movie stick. is where they don't know where the good guys are hiding. So they actually just go and grab a VHS of the movie they're in off of the shelf and pop it in the VCR and fast forward to the scene they're in. That is one of the funniest yeah. gags Mel Brooks has ever done. Mm. I wouldn't say Spaceballs is his funniest film, but that's one of the funniest gags Mel Brooks ever did. Yeah, that's dude. a really great bit. <laughs> how, well. how is there a video of Spaceballs the movie? We're still in the middle of making it. Yeah, I still th- I still think uh, Young Frankenstein is a slight mm. edge for me, but that's just because I'm a sucker for universal horror, really. It's yeah. not because... This is actually more pointed and, and, and intelligent yeah, about a... its humor. We we had a VHS. Even with fart jokes. Uh, yeah, and, one of the great movie fart jokes. It's, it's one movie. of one of the only times I've ever just sort of belly laughed at a good fart joke. Um, it was a, a film we in my household we owned on VHS, and it was one we always popped in when guests came over. It's like hang out and watch a movie, and we always agreed on Blazing Saddles. And uh, the, we came to refer to it this way: we said when we put in Blazing Saddles, we've seen it so many times, we think it's going to be a mistake. It's like oh gosh, we're just going to sit through this movie again, but it always gets you. Yeah. Eventually, you're just sort of won over by its its, it's charm and its wrong. It's actually really hard for a comedy, even a good comedy, to mm. land over and over and over. Yeah, again. yeah, it's um, just like weirdly perfect. It, you, um, could a comedy in order to keep getting you because comedy works often in terms of being unexpected or surprising, mm. and in order to keep getting you over and over and over again, other parts of the comedy need to work and suck you in so mm. that you forget the joke is coming sometimes. Yeah. Blazing Saddles definitely achieves it. Um, let's talk about another one of the funniest movies ever made. It's so funny. Uh, it inspired uh, a beloved Christmas classic many decades later. I am, of course, referring to Bicycle Thieves. Hey, I, I put Bicycle Thieves on my list as there well. There you go. Yeah. It's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> So funny. Yeah. Um, hey, get out of here. Take, take my bicycle. <laughs> wah, wah. Takes place uh, in <laughs> Bicycle Thieves. Vittorio De Sica's film takes place uh, in Italy after the war when everyone was hor- horrendously impoverished. Yep. And filmmakers were not going to be shy about showing it. And it's just yeah. bare realism. Yeah. This is uh, one of the uh, highlights of the Italian neorealist movement mm. in cinema. And, uh, you know, after... 
uh, decades of a propagandistic government just wanting to like everyone to sort of forget their problems. Mm. Uh, filmmakers were really eager to actually talk about our problems without any of the fluff and friffery. Mm. And the neorealist films were basically just, and here's what it's actually like, and it sucks. Mm. Um, a lot of these films are really, really great. Bicycle Thieves is arguably the best, although Umberto Day is really close. If, if you're a dog owner, oh. watch Umberto Day. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, it's it's so beautifully sad. Yeah. It begins with a with a U, though, so we have time. We're gonna get to well, sure, surely we'll cover dog films at some point, and um, if we do, we're gonna mention Umberto. That's Day. probably true. Yeah, uh, but in any case, yeah, Bicycle Thieves is a story of a man. Um, he's he's married. He has a very young son. And he's desperately trying to get a job. And in order to have a job, the job is uh, putting up movie posters. Mm. Uh, he needs a bicycle to get around town and put up movie posters and then get around town again and actually get his quota done. Uh, it's one he's... of the stipulations when he gets the job is mm. that he has a bicycle. Yeah. And the, everything he's got is in this bicycle. He doesn't have anything else. He can't, like, if anything happens to the bicycle, he can't buy a new one. Guess what? Something happens to the bicycle. Yeah, very first day, he's putting up the posters and someone steals his bicycle. And now he's got to basically wander around town trying to find his bicycle and going completely mad with anxiety along the way because his family could starve. Mm -hmm. He could starve. It's also a matter of dignity he's also worried about how he looks to his young son now he's a failure it's really really bitter and it's a movie that i don't think i don't think i would have appreciated this movie if i saw it in junior high yeah well this is a movie about adult adult problems really you know it's about Hmm. the importance of doing a job and being able to do a job and being able to provide for a family and i think that just hits harder when you're an adult and you have some idea of what that's like you know, or, or but there is a young child in the in yeah. the movie and he is uh very the child is very aware of how hard his father is working to look good for him right but he also and doesn't really care about that because it's still his father it's his, so he still respects his father yeah. and it's when he starts doing some things that his young son is wise enough to recognize as being untoward yeah. that he starts to realize what a, a horrible person he's becoming in because of his economic desperation. Yeah. It's about catching yourself before mm. it's too late, but it isn't too late because you no. already made that choice. Um, this is, you know, you call it the neorealist movement and it's mm. very stripped down and it's, you would think it would be like sort of bland and uncinematic and in actuality, it's incredibly rich. Mm. Uh, Desika really makes the film feel very lived in and real. It's not one of those independent small movies where it feels really insular and it's just a couple of people talking. It's actually um, a fully realized world where it feels like you're walking around the streets of the city, mm. uh, getting to know everyone, not just the protagonists. And by really highlighting just how important a bicycle mm. is to one person and one family the movie takes on an epic quality where it feels like the most important thing in the world. And I would Mm. totally like put this up with like a David lean epic in terms of like the extent to which you will be taken on an emotional, powerful, dramatic journey, Mm. even though it's actually really stripped down and and sparse. It's not like, sweeping and inspiring like a David Lean epic. No, 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 no. It's just very bitter and cynical and pained. That's true. That's Uh, true. But I do think it's also just, as transformative emotionally as mm. something that we tend to think of as bigger, more melodramatic, mm. your, you know, there's big a, Oscar historical epics. There's at least yeah. one, uh, notably cinematic shot in the movie where, uh, 
the main character goes to the pawn office. Oh, yeah, it's great. And uh, the way the pawn office works is you hand your wares through a window and they store it in the back in a gigantic warehouse. And uh, we get to see the clerk take an item and walk it into the back of the warehouse and start climbing a ladder to put it up on a high shelf. And we don't realize until the camera continues to pan up how high that shelf is. Yeah. It just goes up and up and up and up. And we get to see just sort of the volume of things that people have had to pawn mm-hmm. just to make ends meet in this yeah. depression that was going on in Italia, in Italia, in, <laughs> Italia, in, in Italy at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, before we move on, uh, just to restate for the umpteenth time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jingle all the way is basically a remake with an, with a really Hollywood happy ending. Yeah, if if um, the guy from Bicycle Thieves had put on a Turbo Man outfit yeah. and flown around and won his son's heart back, and yeah. that's what got him his you, job. You know that scene in Jingle All the Way where like Arnold Schwarzenegger is debating stealing Phil Hartman's son's Turbo mm-hmm. Man in order to help his own son at Christmas, and then stops himself. That's the Bicycle Thieves. That's, that's Bicycle <laughs> Thieves. And then Turbo Man goes into like this really stupid parade bit that has nothing to do with anything. I'm kind of surprised, you know, given all of the nostalgia, I'm surprised nobody's made a Turbo Man movie. Oh my God, you know they're going to. Like they're, or That's like only a, a matter Or of like some sort of Netflix animated series or something. Does, does Disney own that yet? Who, who, I think Paramount put out Is Jingle that Paramount? Actually, gonna, I don't know for sure. I'm going to, hold on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look this up. It can't be that hard to find yeah. out. Hang no, on. Maybe it's not Paramount. I don't, I don't jingle remember. Jingle all... <laughs> is it really necessary to jingle all the way? Uh, <laughs> jingle all the way in this economy? Disney owns Jingle All Disney the Way. Disney owns Jingle Okay, It's a 20th so... Century Fox film. We're getting a Turbo Man series at some point. Mm-hmm. Holy fucking shit. I'd like to see a, a, a sequel, but like the kid's grown up now. Mm. And has like has to live down sort of this dark, one dark Christmas he had. He remembers from his father. All right, well. Uh, oh, you already, you, do you know the actor who played the kid in Jingle All the Way? Wasn't it Jake Lloyd? It was Jake Lloyd. Who yeah, would eventually from, be in... From, uh, Star Wars. That other Disney movie. Mm. Uh, I brought up, and this was not entirely coincidence, I brought up uh, David Lean, mm. uh, because I also have a David Lean film on my list. Ah, is it Blorance of Arabia? <laughs> <laughs> it is. I'm so it is sorry. Blorance of Arabia. Uh, no, it's the Bridge of the River Kwai, which uh, oh, okay. I, I consider... I Brief Encounter, but all right. Uh, you know, I meant to watch Brief Encounter before this, because I actually haven't seen that, but I was oh. happily going to make the time. Uh, it's, it's quite good. Yeah, you know, I try to I try to catch up when I do these lists. I'm like, oh, Jesus, there's a couple of big films I've never seen, and I need mm. to get on that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I wasn't able to fit in Brief Encounter. Um, but Bridge in the River Kwai, I consider one of the great war movies. Um, mm. War movies are a tricky beast, aren't they? Because war is one of the most horrifying and harrowing and shameful things humanity has ever devised. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet it looks so cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's so easy to make a war film that is rousing and exciting and so difficult to make one that acknowledges that war looks good on camera and it is an absolute act of madness. Now, there are a lot of great war movies mm-hmm. out there, and most of them, in, in my estimation, come across anti-war. Uh, I believe... At least I hope I did. All Quiet on the Western Front was on my list when we did the uh, A movies. I think it was. It was uh, because, on both our lists. Because that's one of the great anti-war films of all time. And again, just, it's hard just, to do. Just period. Uh, I think Bridge on the River Kwai uh, handles it well, too. It's a really fascinating story. Uh, it stars uh, Sir Alec Guinness as a British officer who has been captured uh, by the Japanese in World War II. Uh, and he, is, he refuses 
uh, to stand down. He refuses uh, to abandon the principles by which he considers uh, honorable war. And says, mm-hmm. okay, we are POWs and we will, we will do as we must as POWs. But of course, as an officer, I will not be expected to do manual labor. I mean, we all agreed on that. And the Japanese are like, no, I expect to do the manual labor. And he's like, well, I won't. <laughs> and then they torture him within an inch of his life, and he still refuses. And he's, like, driving, like, the leader of this prison camp, like, out of his mind. It's just like, how is he, how does he still have his shit together? His principles are so stupid, but they're so powerful. What the hell do I do? <laughs> and uh, eventually, it segues into Sir Alec Guinness taking over the prison camp and showing the Japanese the best way to kill the English. Mm. Like, we're going to build, you want us to build this bridge? We're going to build the best bridge ever. And you're going to bring over so many supplies mm. and you're going to kill so many British people. And in the end, people are going to say, mm. nobody does war like us. And it takes like three hours for the, for it to <laughs> sink in. And it's really, really amazing. Mm. It is so full of twisted irony and bitterness and just the absolute stunning uh, 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 delusion mm. of greatness through war. Um, uh, Alcanus is great. Uh, William Holden's fine. Uh, <laughs> no, William Holden is an American man. He's, he's, a- he's uh, he plays the same function in the Bridge on the River Kwai that Scatman Crothers plays in The Shining, it where just he gives all of the. Uh- well, he shows up at the beginning, and you know, and he actually escapes, and he he gets away. But then he's told he needs to go back and destroy that bridge, and so it's just like, oh, okay, William Holden's going to come in and maybe solve all these problems, except. You know, it would be a little unsatisfying if that's all there was to it. So there's more to it than that. Um, but um, yeah, this is a stunner. It mm. plays beautifully. It's incredible on a big screen. Jesus Christ. I regret. I, I Again, most people won't see most movies on the big screen ever. If only because they were born too late and there are only so many revival screenings out there. But if you ever get a chance to see this on a big screen, holy mm. shit, is it cool. Just uh, an amazing looking, absorbing a giant motion picture with giant characters and giant storylines and giant like realizations about the madness inherent in killing each other and trying to prove you're better by doing it. Well, and, and of, of course it's, it's an English production and uh, the, the British army is depicted as being like sort of heroic. Yeah. And what I think uh, even David lean wasn't savvy enough to pull off was, it doesn't really matter who built the bridge or that it get blown up. People are going to die either way. Well, and I think, uh, and it doesn't no, help I, that the bridge got built. I mean, certainly it, mm, it makes it easier to kill. Well, it make, it makes, you know. it makes the Japanese, it makes it easier for the Japanese army to kill the British army. Yeah. But the British army is going to kill the Japanese army. Well, so what's but, the point? So, but, and, and the yeah. question is, at what point do the British decide it's in the best interests to facilitate the death of more British soldiers mm. just to prove how superior the British are? Mm. At some and, point, uh, you just you yeah. just completely lost the thread and, and it becomes absurdist. And I think a, a lot of this hinges on the performance of the Japanese uh General, who's uh, played by Sesuo Hayakawa. Yeah, but it's Colonel Saito, uh, great character. And, and look, first of all, look up the career of Sesuo Hayakawa at some mm. point. He just has this gigantic and wonderful, amazing career. And he um, he seems to understand how to manipulate mm. and how to make, like, get in, in under the skin of Alec Guinness, like, get in, into his pride and mm. sort of manipulate him into doing what he wants. 
And uh, at the same time, he's the only character who seems to understand that a lot of this is actually kind of futile. Like, he's going to do his job yeah. as as a general. He's going to make sure that, you know, the soldiers get across this bridge. Yeah. Or, or I guess it's supplies on the train. It's yeah, it's all across the yeah. bri- this bridge. But uh, he also seems to have, like, a, a little bit of irony in everything he's doing. It's like, this, this is all so absurd. I'm just going to do the job because I've been hired to do it. But, yeah. Like, I, I got the feeling that he wasn't... He wasn't doing it for, like, patriotism's sake or because he was an evil guy. He was doing it just out of this weary acceptance of his own uh, role in this war. Well, he has, he has a certain amount of dignity. He expects people to follow him. He has a job to do. Mm-hmm. And, again, just having someone who so stubbornly refuses to be dominated mm-hmm. yeah. challenges his own sense of self-worth and pride. Mm-hmm. Um he goes on a journey too. I don't think he's there like right at the beginning, but I think over the course of the film, he just sort of just like, I don't even know anymore. Um, no, it's a brilliant motion picture. It's a wonderful, wonderful film. And it's one of the few like big brazen war movies that I wholeheartedly recommend. So <laughs> um, it's really just fantastic. Uh, the ending is a killer. It always has been, always will be. It's a good dad movie. Great dad movie. Yeah. Great dad. Ironically, not one I watched with my dad. This wasn't mm. one of my dad's favorite World War II films. He was a rivet counter. He loved oh, everything yeah. World War II. He knew all oh, the details. He, he would have loved Greyhound. I think. Oh, he I think he would. Ha- I Greyhound. think he would. He yeah. wasn't big into the Navy, that, but I think that he would have loved that it. That is just a rivet counting. Like it's specifically for the rivet counters. Yeah, I think the movie he would have loved that he wasn't alive to see died a few mm. years like before. Uh, it was uh, Fury, mm. uh, the Brad Pitt tank movie, yeah. which is really fucking good and it really bothers me that like people don't talk about that one more because I think that's David Ayer's best film by far I know, I know End of Watch is also good no, was, but like, those say, are the two I, I think End of Watch is his those best are the, movie but those made, are the two he made those two back to back the rest of his films are pretty much just crap I, I like Training Day more than you but yeah yeah you're, you're well, yeah. Antoine, Antoine Fuqua made Training Day Oh shit! You're that right. Wasn't, what that was wasn't David thinking? Ayer. What was? Did he write it or something? Maybe, maybe, maybe it was like a, a hand in the screenplay. But yeah, and Antoine Foucault was the director of. of I could have Hold on, I want to find this out. <laughs> yeah, he wrote it. Okay, okay that's, yeah. I'm not crazy. <laughs> I'm not crazy. I just yeah, he, for, he's done a lot of really horrible cop movies, yeah. and yeah, just, mm. that was just a brain fart. I totally yeah. knew Antoine Foucault directed yeah. that. I just David Ayer wrote it, and I got tumbled up for a second yeah. because it's late. Uh, let's <laughs> move on. What's your what's uh, well? What's your next one? Uh, my next one, and this is this would be my second to last now because okay. of the way we've been counting this down. Um, we put this on a list of the best films of the 1980s mm. when we did such a thing, and uh, it's David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Oh yeah, uh, which is <laughs> which I also forgot about. Oh well, all right. No, it's it's fine. It's I I would think great it's a, a little bit of a, a gimme, but yeah, it's no, uh, it's a great movie. I'm glad you thought of it. This one came after David Lynch had made Dune, which was a big studio monster that uh, he rather famously hated that experience and thought it wasn't really his movie. Um, they recut it and he uh, for like TV and for other markets, and the recut was so bad that he that Lynch took his name off of it. It's an Alan Smithy film. Mm-hmm. If you watch like the extended cut. Of Dune. Ironically, a lot of people like that version better because the plot makes more sense. They, they, they actually more... explain a lot yeah. more in that one. Uh, yeah, I, I like his Dune. I'm gonna. Uh, I haven't really read the book, so right. I, I, know, I don't know what I'm what he's screwing up. But mm. it's neat. Well, you, you know those little like devices they wear on their wrists, and mm. they kind of like amplify their voices into weapons. And yeah. their voices are killing. None of that's in the book. Those weirding modules aren't in the book at all. That was Why would up. I read this book? <laughs> it's made up for the there's movie. nothing I want. There's nothing yeah. for me here anymore. Like, all but there's still stuff. like the the gum jabari puts his hand in and I don't care feels about that. pain. Just... And, 
the, the shields that appear around their bodies, that's in the book. I don't care about that. Okay. <laughs> I want the weirdest shit. The, 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 the poisonous tooth that's in the, that's right, in the book. Poisonous yeah. tooth. Is, the, is the I'm going to spit on you now scene in the book? No, that was written. Again, why would I read this book? The, the bit where... Um, uh, the prisoner has to milk a cat in order to survive. Uh, that's not in the book. Uh, remember that scene? Yeah. You have to milk this animal as a hairless cat. Well, listen, when we get to the machine. D movies, I'm sure we'll get have a long we'll, we'll, we'll conversation, have a conversation about, about Dune. Dune. But after, <laughs> after Dune, uh, David Lynch sort of uh, came back to filmmaking doing exactly what he wanted. He wanted yeah. to make sure he Scaled had, it way back. Yeah, he wanted to make sure he had control over it and like sort of was playing more to his own personal interests. So, yeah, he made Blue Velvet, which was, uh, on its surface, a noir film. A lot of David Lynch's films are described as noir, but they are they don't feel like noir to me. I mean, they're they about feel... the bleakness in our hearts, but they're not really... Yeah, thematically, yes, yeah. but they don't look or feel like traditional detective stories. They that's, feel like... That's they not feel a requirement like... for noir, but... No, yeah. but they, they feel like nightmares, and uh, yeah. it's about a young... Young boy home from college. His name is Jeffrey. He's going for a visiting uh, an infirm father who's suffered an attack of some sort, a stroke uh, or a heart attack, something like that. Yeah, they, yeah. they never clarify. And uh, while he's walking home from seeing his father, he finds an ear in a field, a severed uh, human, a ear. severed human ear. That was such a bizarre thing to see in a movie mm-hmm. in the 1980s. Because it comes out of nowhere. Yeah, he's just sort of looking out at this big kind of muddy, swampy-looking field and finds just an ear at his feet. It's got mold yeah. on it. And they, they, it's got a little hair on it. it. Looks like it's been cut off with scissors. Yeah. And this opens the door to a big mystery. He enlists a, a local plucky teen played by Laura Dern, and they discover the most fucked up possible shit is going on in their little idyllic town. Yeah, and this is a town like the 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 opening credit sequence is like straight mm-hmm. out of Mayberry. Like mm-hmm. it's absolute Literal idyllic picket fences, and, and robotic like, people waving. Yeah, to and, you. and the very simple, I think, premise of Blue Velvet, and it's, it, it isn't a simple movie, but the simple mm-hmm. premise is that underneath all of the shit that you take for granted. Mm-hmm horrible people are doing horrible things constantly and you only need to shift your focus slightly to see it yeah Um, the famous opening shot as we we're hearing uh bobby vinton's blue velvet we're looking at all these idyllic 1950s sitcom scenes and then we pan down to the the really well-kempt lawn and pan just underneath and we see this big uh noisy uh gathering of insects and bugs and vermin just sort of crawling there that's the symbol for the movie and yeah uh, there's also a symbol at the end where they see this a bird of happiness that comes to visit them. Yeah. But it's this really unconvincing animatronic bird. So you know it it's has, bullshit. Yeah. So yeah, it's, so it's really, really fake and it has a bug in its beak. So it's also carrying death. Uh, but they're still playing all this happy music. Yeah. So it's completely ironic. Cal McLaughlin winds his way into a really nightmare mm-hmm. situation uh, regarding a, a nightclub singer played by... Um, Isabella Rossellini. Thank you, Isabella Rossellini. Sorry, it's late. Uh, Isabella Rossellini, and it turns out that her child has been kidnapped uh, by a horrible man who wants to use it as leverage mm. to do horrible things to her. Yes. And he, of course, is played by Dennis Hopper in one of his most iconic and grotesque roles. Mm. Um, and uh, Kyle MacLachlan finds himself entering into a bizarre world of voyeurism and domination mm. and like, sexual he, kink. And yeah, he like he discovers his own kink through all of this, yeah. but it's not like rocky horror where it's it's fallen he just sort of discovers that this is part of everything now yeah everything is tainted in the world of blue velvet everything is horrifying yeah uh the the, the human mind is a, a swamp wasteland yeah 
of of violence and kink, and it all lives right underneath this 1950s ideal. Uh, this was one of like maybe the prime examples of the 1980s tendency to satirize 50s stuff. We already talked about the Burbs. Yeah, uh, Blue Velvet does the exact same thing, uh, and I I don't think any film really managed to do it better. Managed yeah. managed to make the the idyllic seem so fake and the nightmare underneath seems so terrifying. Yeah, no, this is, I think this is, is it David Lynch's best film? I would actually argue no. Mm. Is it the film that's like the Rosetta Stone to his entire filmography? Yeah. Maybe so, I, yeah. I think uh, if you're like, I don't get, I saw Eraserhead and I don't get it. Watch Blue Velvet, then go back. <laughs> then go back and watch and it. And then it'd be like, yeah. oh, okay. I see what, yeah, I understand the contrast of what mm. we're uh, going through here. Uh, Blue Velvet is... It's amazing how evil it feels, even to this day. Like, it's so easy to feel jaded, like, oh, I've seen so much shit. There's something really sick about it. Mm. Like, the, the movie itself feels kind of diseased. And mm. that's, of course, the point. That's, that's a compliment. Um, but it's really impressive. And, and, and again, I think if any Lynch films can be called a noir, it's like this in Lost Highway. Yeah. Um, because you know it is about crime. It is about you know wandering into a realm where where there is no goodness anymore. Goodness cannot be trusted. Mm-hmm. And but yeah, it, there's something so just virulently dark mm-hmm. about the world that Kyle MacLachlan finds. And I love the movie, but I don't <laughs> like the darkness. The darkness yeah. is genuinely frightening. Yeah, the darkness is genuinely evil and going to hell. There's if such a, a thing yeah. exists. And that there, that kind of evil does exist in, in a lot of David Lynch's films. It's a big part of Wild at Heart as well. It's a big, Twin Peaks, big, big part. Yeah. Yeah, Twin Peaks, for sure. It's a big part of Lost Highway. I give Lost Highway the edge just because that's such a fucking beautiful movie. So, just the way it's photographed and framed. It's yeah. like David Lynch at the height of his filmmaking mastery. Yeah, it's and, super freaky. I do not understand mm-hmm. why, film, why film critics like didn't go for that. People hated that movie when it came yeah, out. Yeah. It's one of his best. It's so damn good. I remember they uh, they had to advertise that it got uh, two thumbs down yeah, from Siskel and Ebert. Yeah, and they said two, two reasons to see it. Like they were, they were trying to sort of play it off. But yeah, yeah. Cr- critics didn't like The Lost Highway at all. Nah. I think it's... It might have had a reckoning since. I think. I think, I think after uh, Mulholland Drive came out, people kind of understood Lost Highway I, a little better. But I also feel like Mulholland Drive kind of took the air out of Lost Highway's sales because it does a lot of the same things. It's about yeah. people whose identity shift over the course of the film in order to reckon with uh, violent situations that may or may not have occurred. Mm-hmm. And, um, personally, I slightly prefer Lost Highway, uh, but they're both great. Uh, but in any case, yeah, uh, Blue Velvet is a great pick. Mm. I don't know why it didn't end up on my list. I literally don't even have it in my runners up. I think I forgot <laughs> it. Yeah, I'm it's, embarrassed. It's okay. I'm, it's okay. I'm glad it's you remembered it. I'm so glad you remembered it. Thank you. And we're at a point now where it's like the only two things that are left for me are like could easily be number one mm-hmm. because they're just so damn good. They're like cinema at its best. Um, and I, you could say that for a couple of the other films on my list, certainly Bride of Frankenstein, Bridge in the River Kwai, Bicycle Thieves, Best Years of Our Lives, The Birds, etc. But um, these were the two where I'm like, one of these is the best and I don't know which one. So I'll just say uh, for my number two, it's a tie. All right. But they all begin with B. Mm-hmm. Before sunrise, before sunset, oh. before midnight. <laughs> all right. Fair. Yeah, totally. The before trilogy, if you will. Mm. Uh, Richard Linklater. Uh, made a film in 19... Uh, and it uh, stars... I think, the, I think the first one was 92. No, because it's like... No, is it like, a, it's like 11 years between them all? 
Because there's actually oh, this, no. there's actually a steady interval between. You know, I'm gonna go, oh, okay. I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna look it up. Um, because uh, uh, there's a steady interval between them all. It's always the same. It kind, of, we're, we're... kind of burst onto the scene in '90 with Slacker, and yes. so he made. I think that I think before uh, Sunrise '95. '95. Okay. He made one. In, he off. made uh, before Sunrise in 1995. Before Sunset in 19. Uh, no, sorry, 2004. Mm-hmm. And before Midnight in 2013. Which means if he continues apace, we should be getting before I don't know brunch. Uh, in 2022, like in one year. Before brunch. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, if we're going to continue this thing, he doesn't have to. It's a, it's a perfect trilogy as it is. But if he continues it, it would be next year. Um, well, and the last film was about how uh, the two characters had been married for a while and their yeah. marriage wasn't so rosy. Well, yeah, because, like, the first film was actually, like, on its own, like, before people knew there was going to be a follow up. It's this really beautiful. Uh, all in one night uh, storyline about an American tourist who meets a French woman on a train in Europe. Uh, they get off the train together. They're total strangers, mm-hmm. and they spend one night together. And then in just, the m- just wandering, just wandering, having wonderful conversations, really getting to know each other, mm-hmm. not in a superficial like rom com kind of way, but like really deep, thoughtful conversations and understanding each other in ways that people they've known their whole lives never would. Mm-hmm. Uh, true, beautiful connection. Very rarely in a movie does a, do two people feel like more connected over such a short period of time. Um, and then at the end of the movie, uh, it's he has to take a train, and they agree uh, to possibly meet up mm. in I think it's a year, but like and but uh, but that's it. He has to go. Um, Before Sunset takes place nine years later and reveals what they did that whole time, mm. uh, and Before Sunset takes place only over like a couple of hours. Like he's at like a book signing. She yeah. shows up to the book signing, and he has like a plane to catch. And they only have like a couple of hours to catch up because it's been a while. Mm. Um, and it's incredible just how like because in the first film they were total strangers, and this one they have so much baggage based on what they did or didn't do well, in the interim, and uh, they're they're trying to say everything and they're saying nothing, and the, it's really uh, incredible. The the first one they're in their twenties. They're uh young students traveling the world and discovering things for the first time. And they're really excited to form this bond together. The next time they meet, they're older. They have careers now. They're adults. And they, there's so much more at stake for both of them. Yeah. uh, In terms of what they need to say, what they cannot say and what it would mean for them to actually start dating now. The best parts I think in before sunset, besides the ending, which is perfection uh, yeah, that, all, uh, that last shot. Ah, uh, it's so perfect. Like, uh, <laughs> but uh, there's there's several moments like throughout the movie where you can see like one of them is looking somewhere else and the other one is like looking at them, and you you can see that they're about to say something or about to touch them and then they don't. Yeah, and it's God, it's heart wrenching every <laughs> single time. It's fantastic. And then uh, nine years later, uh, we returned uh, to uh, Jesse and Celine uh, in Before Midnight. And uh, at this point, they're actually, they've actually been married for a while. Mm. They have kids. And their relationship is different. They still talk. But there's also a lot of things that they haven't dealt with, even though they mm. talk all the time. And you realize that no matter how great they seem together, time doesn't just heal all wounds. It also opens them. Yeah. And they are not the same people and they're not in the same place. And that's something that I love about these movies and how they work as a unit. Even in the most romanticized way, uh, relationships that take place over a long amount of time have different kinds of drama that most movies are comfortable exploring. Mm. Most movies are about the beginning of a relationship or about the ending of it. The middle doesn't get as much play. There aren't a lot of movies that are just the middle of a marriage. 
Well, just the, the the one I can think of, like the Hollywood film I can think of, was "This Is Forty, yeah. which is about try turning forty and trying to make your marriage work. Yeah, it's it's actually just, just an everyday thing, and it, it just grinds on and on and on. And that's yeah. I think that's sort of the point of the movie. I actually like that movie. It's bougie as fuck, and like their <laughs> yeah. problems are completely unrelatable, but their characters are great. Oh no, we our, our sixteen million dollar mansion might have to go on sale. We'll have to move into a five million dollar mansion. Yeah. You poor souls. Fuck off. Like, I can't, I cannot relate to their problems. Oh, but I no, think my great. indie record label. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> Again, yeah. cannot relate to that at all. But I still like their problems, and I like that the movie addresses mm. them, but it's frustrating that they only address them from that. And even before uh, Midnight, oh, no. Mm. Our, our, our beautiful Italian villa may be marred by unpleasant conversation today. Like, there's, a little, there's a little bit in there. A little, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But we're, at this point, we're so wrapped up in them. Mm. that uh, that matters, mm. I think. And I think constantly revisiting these same people over the course of their lives. Again, it's a cinematic experiment that had been done before. The Up series is a documentary that explores something similar. And um, But I think a lot of it is the incredible chemistry between Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy and mm. how they are also co-writers of a lot of these movies. And they have made these, I think, two of the richest characters in any romantic canon. Yeah. Uh, and I love them. <laughs> I love, and, and, and it frustrates me because they were also in Waking Life, which I doesn't begin with a B, but it's it's also a great scene in it. And um I I really do think this is one of the great motion picture of like series. Yeah. Uh People talk about like, oh, name a better trilogy than Star Wars. The Before Trilogy. Star Wars is your bar, really? Because I yeah. can name at least five. There's some, there's some yeah. good ass trilogies yeah. out there that have nothing oh. to do with like action adventure. Yeah. And this is, argue, this, yeah. I would argue this is probably the best, yeah. but if, yeah, I, if, because it's a conversation now. So the Before Trilogy, I really like the Apu Trilogy. Yeah, three I Colors. Like, yeah, yeah. Christoph Kieslowski's Three Colors is amazing. Um Ingmar, they're thematically linked, but Ingmar Bergman's Silence of God trilogy sure. uh, is uh, Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light, and The Silence. Uh, and uh, Jean Cocteau's uh, poet, Poetry, his, yeah, Orpheus his, Orphic, his yeah. Orphic trilogy, uh, Blood of a Poet, or Orpheus, and Testament of Orpheus, which he made o- yeah. over the course of his career, and then they kind of linked them together at the end. Yeah, there's a lot of really incredible, like, serialized and, uh, work. And that, my sir, my good sir, was my segue to my number one, uh-huh. which is a John Cocteau film. I also have a John Cocteau <laughs> film as my number one. Oh, <laughs> uh, we chose La Belle et la Bête, yeah! didn't we? Okay. <laughs> uh, Jean Cocteau's 1946 film, Beauty and the Beast, is one of the best films of all time. No two ways about that. Uh, everything you love about Beauty and the Beast, you think you love from the Disney version. But Disney all ripped of the good, off this version All of the good so stuff from the Disney version came from John Cocteau's version. John Cocteau, uh, painter, artist, surrealist, made a Beauty and the Beast film. And it is... It is more than a simple fable. No. He's not simply here to tell a story. He's here no. to capture the texture of what a fable is. That kind of fearful childhood nightmare story where things do progress in a story-like way, but they progress in this dream logic sort of fashion. And the story is, is the same. Uh, an old man picks a rose out of a beast's garden. He says, I will kill you. And he says, no, no, please. I have an attractive daughter. He says, send that attractive daughter to my way. She's going to live with me and I'll spare your life. Yeah. 
Beauty and the Beast, and they live in the and the the Beast is played by uh, Jean Marais, who was Cocteau's lover at the time, huh. or I'm not sure if he was his lover at the time, or maybe they had just broken up. Either uh, way, they had a relationship. Yeah, they they had, they had had a relationship, and uh, he plays the Beast. He also plays sort of the the ne'er do well suitor. Yeah, the who, Gaston uh, yeah. character, if you will. His actually his character's name is Avenon. Avenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, th- this is the character like when Disney did Gaston, they were they were doing Avenon. D- yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, the handsome but oh, but um, assholeish yeah. person who would rather be with uh, mm. uh, Belle. Yeah. The makeup they pu- must have put Jean Marais through. Jean, Jean Marais through yeah. uh, must have been excruciating because they yeah. they're gluing like real hair to him. Yeah. Uh, they're, they they uh, give him these these big teeth. When he kills, smoke comes off of his claws in, in that weird sort well, of that's way. The cool and thing, that's the cool thing about, I think, this version of Beauty and the Beast. Because yeah. Cocteau is um, is a surrealist mm. uh, in, in the most political sense of that word. Uh, and uh, so when he does Beauty and the Beast, and this is considered kind of, this, this is considered relatively mainstream for him at the time. Mm. Um, but he's not really operating on a literal level the way a lot of the fantasy stories that we have now do. Mm. In which there are rules, in yeah. which there are uh, sort of uh, uh, guidelines and expectations, and things are supposed to make a certain amount of sense because this is that's actually a monster that makes sense. Um, he doesn't give a shit if it makes sense, and if well, beauty s- just sense is not where the fable lives. Exactly, it's mm. it actually lives in this heightened, incredible, phantasmagoric reality in which all of our desires and our fears are heightened to the extent that they're not recognizable as reality anymore. Mm. So the beast is an incredible monster. The uh, haunted castle in which he lives isn't full of like, you know, uh, you know, fun dancing plates and dishes. They're actually like severed armed candelabras mm. that the, are actually the, the idea that the castle itself is a living being from the, the 1991 animated film also from that. Com- comes from this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not that there's a talking clock. It's yeah, that it's not cute. These there's something alive inside the walls and mm. it's not this literal thing where the servants are trapped. It's just yeah. that it's an enchanted place. Yeah. And we just sort of accept that in this yeah. r- s- like this, semi-surreal reality. This, Beauty and the Beast, Disney's Beauty and the Beast, which is a great movie. Mm. Undeniably great movie. Made my runners up. It's a great movie. Uh, that's like the version of the fairy tale where they're just trying to like capture the iconography. Mm. Uh, this one's trying to capture the dream that inspired the fairy tale in the first place. Like you can see whoever it was, who, I forget who it was, but whoever it was who first came up with Beauty and the Beast just wakes up in a cold sweat. Oh God! <laughs> I have to write all this fucking shit down. Oh my fucking God. And it'll go through rewrites later, but like this is all the shit that went through mm. their head like the first time they had a horrible dream. And it became a story of monstrousness and terror and beauty and teardrops that turn into diamonds and monsters that Mm. turn into men. And, you know, a a, a world in which in order to save his own skin, a dad would send his daughter to be like ravaged by a beast. Mm. You know, it's not a good place. (laughs) It's not a a good situation. And the movie doesn't pretend Mm. it. Um, and it's just impeccably realized. It's, it's a gorgeous black and white photography that is used to present a variety of visual effects, which, you know, they're not as maybe clean as we're used to today, but they're just as effective because mm. they're not trying to be clean or real. We're not going for photorealism here. We're going for 
again, pure fantasy where mm. the limitations are not what can look good. The limitations are what we can conceive. Mm. And that's something that I miss in a lot of the fantasy and sci-fi yeah. that we have today. Yeah, the, the, that sense of uh, of bizarrety, of of, yeah. of dream, of wonderment. Yeah. It's, I feel like uh, Star Wars lost this. The first Star Wars is well, like, is like, yeah, we have a laser sword. How does that work? Why would the laser stop? It doesn't fucking matter. It's cool. All right, it is cool. All right, we'll just well, go with that. And then they have to explain I, fucking everything. Well, you know? and, and I, I think cool was one of the sort of the downfall of a lot of this stuff. That's a good point. Um, trying to be cool and flip and confident and, oh, yeah, I'm, I have a laser sword and how it's got a crystal in it. I built it myself. Yeah, it's got it's one like, of those kyber crystals. Yeah. Of course, it's purple, which means this for me. And yeah, I'm like, so, I all of this is ruining it for me. Right, I'm, I'm not I'm gonna really, lie. I'm really, I'm really confident with this tool, and everybody knows what this is now. And we're gonna have 30 of them in one scene. It's like, what about that scene where Mark Hamill pushes a button and just like pops into existence and makes those weird yeah, electric sense, noises? Oh, sense that's of discovery. Yeah, you know? yeah. That, all that's gone. Yeah, it's gone out of a lot of fantasy yeah. now. Um, it's back in uh, 1946, and in, in in addition to uh, having all of those fable-like qualities, it's also uh, very classical. It feels very, uh, uh, very operatic in a way, um, like s- something you'd see with your parents. Uh, it, and it cleaves pretty closely, from what I understand, to the original story, which yeah. was by um, Le- something Le Prince, um, uh, Jean Marie Le Prince. Jean Marie Le Prince. Jean Marie Le Prince Dumont de Beaumont. Okay. Yeah, a lot of names. Um, Le Prince and there's a lot of different versions, and this thing has been uh, altered and warped and uh, added to and recontextualized. And there's so many fascinating, like Mm. there there are whole like books that are just like different versions of the story that have been told, and it's really really fascinating Mm. uh, to see the uh, evolution of the fantasy stories as we know them before. Yeah, yeah. there there was the idea of there being the one real one. No, that's not a thing. Mm. Um. I'm glad we agreed on this. Okay, good. Because we actually didn't have a lot of overlap this mm-hmm. time. I was. What do we have? We had um, Bicycle Thieves, Bride of Frankenstein, and this. That's yeah. it. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were some of your runners up? Okay, I had a lot of runners up, obviously. So I'm going to make it as quick as I can. Mm-hmm. Just just lift. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give a note if I think it's not obvious. Uh, Back to the Future really is great, but I thought it was a cliche. <laughs> okay. uh, you don't need me to tell you Back to the Future is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Badlands came very very close to my top oh, ten. Okay. It's I incredible. Didn't, didn't, didn't think of Badlands. Uh, Barry Lyndon is one of my favorite Stanley Kubrick movies. Right. Uh, Batman the movie and Batman Returns were pretty close. <laughs> I, I couldn't. I had Batman the '66 film. I, I was leaning towards Batman Returns because I think it's a little bit more rich, but they're both great. Uh, Battleship Potemkin came very oh, very for close. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, uh, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, I think, is one of the most accessible Giallo films. Mm. Um, it feels like if Kubrick made a serial killer movie, it's so good. Um, like, uh, what's it got? Black Orpheus came very close. Okay, good. Uh, to be good, on my yeah. list, I'd love that movie. Um, the Blair Witch Project, I think. I, uh, I had that one. I think it gets well. scapegoated a lot. Where people are just like, oh, it just like started this, this subgenre that wasn't great. But yeah, the original film was incredible and inventive, and it's so fascinating. Mm. Uh, Blood Simple. I still think there's an argument to be made yeah, that's right. the Coen Brothers' best movie. Uh, Body Heat. For sure, Body uh, Heat. Bound. I think the only reason I didn't pick Bound is because I'd already picked it on our film noir list, like mm. for the Iron List, and I just didn't want to repeat myself too much, but it's that good. Uh, Boys in the Hood came very I close. I put that one on my runner's app. Um, I added it because you said it, and I should have uh, Brain Donors. <laughs> uh, Brick, I love, but it was never going to be in the top ten. Mm. I just I love it. I wanted to be in the runner's up. It was uh, be- better when it was called the... Uh, 
River's Edge. Fun. Let's call it the River Wild. Okay. Well, if it movie. was the River's Edge, we could have put it on this list, but instead it's only movies that begin with B. A uh, couple more. Uh, broadcast News, wonderful performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Brood, wonderfully scary film. Uh, Bubba Hotep. <laughs> and a movie I really want to—I really want to put this on my top ten, but I couldn't make the time to rewatch it, and I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I didn't want to be able to speak with comfort uh-huh. that it was this good. Uh, but uh, Gio Pontecorvo's *Burn*. Oh, okay. Uh, *Burn* is uh, just real fast because nobody knows about this movie. Uh, I think it's Gilo Pontecorvo. Is it Gio? Yeah. Okay. Uh, but uh, *Burn* stars Marlon Brando uh, as a British uh, spy of sorts who is. Uh, sent to an island in the Caribbean in order to start an insurrection amongst uh, the locals uh, who are being uh, abused and uh, enslaved by the French. Uh, I think it's the French. Uh, into, into servitude. And we're going to start an insurrection. We're going to overthrow the French. And now, now that it's been destabilized, the British can come in. Mm. And in order to start this insurrection, uh, he turns one of the locals into a rebel leader and icon. Uh, and... After he leaves, mission accomplished, everything's done. That guy keeps fighting the British. <laughs> and Marlon Brando is brought back, this time to kill him. It's a really, really great movie. I just haven't seen it recently enough to speak about it in detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marlon Brando considered it some of the best acting he ever did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he's right. Uh, so if you've never seen Burn, please check it out. It's really, really right. great. Well, I'm going to rewatch it again myself. I just didn't get to do it in time for this podcast. Well, I, I, on my runners-up, I put another uh, Gilo Pontecorvo film. I put Battle of Algiers. I figured you might, uh, which, yeah. which I really, really love. I, I don't remember when I talked about Battle of Algiers. I think it was like a, one of our best movies of all time lists, because it is that good. Um, I, I would rather you discover Battle of Algiers. I, I, I know. I, I need to see yeah. this one. And you haven't seen Burns. Maybe we should yeah, okay. switch sometime. Uh, Battleship Potemkin. Uh, Boyhood yeah. of the Richard Linklater canon. I was I surprised I didn't list. make any yeah. list, actually. I kept expecting I, it to pop I up. I really, really love Boyhood. Yeah. I also put Bound. I also put Body Heat. I also put Blair Witch Project. Um, Spike Lee's Black Klansman is mm. definitely notable. Uh, Black Christmas was on my list. <laughs> um, Herschel Gordon Lewis' Blood Feast oh, I is, is really terrific. Yeah. Uh, the 1966 Batman. Uh, it's not a good movie. In fact, it's quite a bad movie, but golly, is it entertaining. But Lucio Fulci's The Beyond yeah, is such a I'll blast. Let have, I'll let um, you have that. That's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, I put Boys on the Hood. Uh, and I, I also put Das Boot on my list. Nice. Uh, um, which I saw when they re-released it. They like expanded it into this three-hour yeah. epic. It's a, about a German U-boat. Yeah. And just life aboard it. And it goes on and on and on. It's really kind of harrowing and claustrophobic in the way a submarine film is. I actually haven't seen that one either. Mm. Um, Real fast, quick correction, because I wanted to look it up. Um, Mm. It's uh, not the French in Bern. It's uh, the Portuguese. Okay. It's a Portuguese island. Um, I haven't seen uh, Bern, so I couldn't have corrected No, it's fine. I I want someone's going to correct me, Mm. and I hope you do. I hope you've seen the movie and and can do so. But um, yeah, just for the the record, uh, because I want people to see this movie because I think it's incredible. Um, Please. Um, Okay, so that... Ladies and gentlemen, is the Iron List for the month of January. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to every single one of our patrons who voted for this list. Uh, we'll be back in February with another giant-sized uh, best-of list or some mm. other various form of list. Uh, big bunch of recommendations for every one of our listeners uh, that will be decided on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, we have not decided what's going to go on that poll yet. Not yet, but nope. we'll, we'll discuss. We will. It'll, it'll be a thing. 
Um, but um, anyway, thank you everybody once again. Uh, special thank you to all of our patrons, without whom we wouldn't exist. If you want to join up and vote for future episodes of the Iron List and future episodes of the Streaming Club and get a whole bunch of exclusive content like podcasts about Batman and Star Trek and the Academy Awards and commentary tracks and the like, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. If you want to talk about anything we discussed on this podcast or take us to task for anything on this podcast. What did we miss? Let us know what we missed. Did we miss something amazing? Not talk about it. we not mention something cool? I don't know. Um, Are you like a really big fan of Booty Call? Like, that's a good movie. (laughs) I thought about it. I actually think that's a funny film. I haven't seen Booty Call. It's it's about trying to find prophylactics. It's about about two guys in the 90s and they're both on a date Mm. and the date's going really, really well. But their girlfriends are extremely... Safe sex is very important to them. And so they're like, okay, so we have to go off and find the safe sex stuff and every single time they go out another horrifying adventure comes along uh and um it's got a good message it's pretty funny it's been a while since i've seen it it might not have aged great but i remember thinking to myself this is good this is actually pretty funny it's, it's actually kind of like ethical like it's actually got a good message to it like it's a good pretty good flick um Anyway, uh, but by all means, please let us know uh, if we missed anything. Then you can write us in letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address. Uh, we might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. You can also follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William DeBiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, until then, that's the list. Just bye. Bye begins with a B. Indeed. <laughs>